You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 410. Listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG Headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 30th of January, 2020. Today's episode, three people die when a C-130 crashes while fighting bushfires in Australia. A Florida man under arrest for temporarily blinding a pilot with a laser. More news, your feedback, and another edition of Plane Tales. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seatbacks in the upright and locked position. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 410 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger, for our wonderful intros. He is a an uh, Emmy Award-winning TV and radio reporter, currently at the number one all-news station in the nation, 1010 Wins. And you, folks, are watching and listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast where we talk about aviation news and answer your feedback. And here with me this week from... Her lakeside home in the Carolinas, doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot. It's Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. It is great to be here for the start of a show for once in the past few weeks. So looking forward to, we have a lot of stuff to talk about today, so looking forward to all of that. Me too. And so nice to have you with us from the very beginning. And also with us from... His studio in the English countryside, a professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, and retired captain for an international airline based in London, it's Captain Nick. Hi there, Jeff. Hi, Steph. Great to see you. Looking forward to a super show, as always. And, um, yeah, it's been late. I'm lucky if I make the end. It's what? It's a bit late. It's going to be a bit late. Okay. Well... You know what that means, then? We should probably get on with the show so we don't keep you up too late. You're a gent. Stand by for news. All right, we start off with the first item in the news folder. You know, uh, having perused the news folder, I'm sure you'll agree that it has not been a good week for positive aviation news stories. No, not not one of those weeks at all. No. Uh, So let's start with this one. Um, We're all aware of the uh, bushfires uh, almost out of control. I guess they're under control now 
in Australia, and a lot of folks are fighting these fires, and that includes on the ground and in the air. And a tragedy occurred last week when a, a C-130 crashed in, uh, what is it called, the Snowy Mountains or something like that um, in New South Wales? Snowy Monaro area. Oh, okay. Close sure. enough. Um, and, uh, the C-130, uh, was operated by Coulson in, um, in Canada and, uh, they put out a news, uh, media release while working in the snowy Monaro area in Southern New South Wales, Australia contact was lost with one of our large air tankers, a Lockheed C-130 registration, November 134, Charlie Golf. The aircraft had departed Richmond, New South Wales, with a load of retardant. Oh, I've been there, actually. It's a, kind of a Royal Australian Air Force base, I believe. Mm. Um, yeah, it's not far from the snowies to the west of uh, Sydney. Not far from Sydney, either, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, when Just I was in the point air. Of order. Oh, yes. yeah. oh, Colson, I think, is in the U.S., isn't it? Yes. Oregon? No. No? Well, it does say Portland, Oregon, doesn't it? I thought, for mm -hmm. some reason, I thought it was Canadian. I think they have a division in Canada. I have a feeling this aircraft came from that division. Oh, maybe that's why oh, okay. I thought that. Okay. So uh, let's just say North America. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. The accident is reported to be extensive, and we are deeply saddened to confirm there were three fatalities. The accident response team has been activated as well as local emergency services. Colson Aviation will be sending a team to the site to assist in emergency operations. Our thoughts and prayers are with the families of the three crew members on board. Sincerely, the Colson family. Uh, by the way, several of our community members sent us uh, various news articles regarding this tragedy. And uh, so we do appreciate that, folks. Um, uh, let's see. The one at the top here is actually photos and a little bit of information about the three crew members. Uh, let's see, from left to right, we have First Officer Paul Clyde Hudson, and Hudson was a decorated Marine with 20 years of service who also flew C-130s for the Marine Corps. He retired as a lieutenant colonel before joining Colson. He is survived by his wife. And then next is uh, Captain Ian Macbeth, and he was a military pilot who also served with the Wyoming Air National Guard and was a current member, or is a current member, uh, well, I guess was of the uh, Montana Air National Guard while working for Colson. He is survived by his wife and three children. And then uh, the one on the right is Rick DeMorgan Jr. And he was an Air Force pilot who served as a flight engineer on C-130s for 18 years. Uh, he had more than 4,000 hours of flying time and nearly 2,000 of those in combat. He is survived by his two sons. So um, we are our thoughts and prayers uh, for the families of the folks that uh, perished in, uh, you know, uh, I'd call it a heroic effort to try to, you know, squash those fires. And uh, yeah, sadly. sure. They were there putting themselves in, in harm's way to help others. So, yeah. Very sad. Okay. Can I just set the record straight? Mm -hmm. yes. I was wrong. Um, BC, Canada, British Columbia in Canada is mm -hmm. where they are based, Port, uh, Port Albany. Okay. Uh, and I'm guessing that they have uh, a U.S. branch, so I got it the wrong way around. Yeah. Oh, so, so it is Canadian then? Yeah. Canadian okay. company for, with a U.S. division is what it is. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I just saw this on uh, this one of these articles. Colson Aviation is a privately owned family company based in Canada. That's why I thought that. Yes. 
No. Sorry, my fault. I was just reading the press release, which had right. Uh, it's from their U.S. division. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, um, yeah, sad, sad story. Um, and you really uh, haven't gotten any information at all. I think that the only thing I heard was that uh, the airplane had crashed shortly after offloading its load of fire retardant, and uh, not sure exactly. They said the visibility was horrible there because of the fires. So, not sure exactly uh, how they ended up crashing, but. Uh, yeah, if we find out, we'll certainly talk about it on the show. Mm-hmm. Anything else to say about that? No, other than uh, this was a very experienced crew. Uh, I mean, I've read all sorts of tributes uh, to them as individuals, uh, and particularly the flight engineer, it seems, who was had had a, an amazing career. Uh, but they were all very experienced guys, so I'd be very surprised, very surprised if they had done anything wrong. But we know that this is a high-risk occupation, uh, and occasionally when all the factors go against you, it's going to be real tough to uh, survive a, a situation that uh, uh, might be beyond the aircraft's capability to uh, get out of. So, yeah, uh, it's it's quite likely they just ended up in one of those places where uh, you know, it was inevitable. But uh, and they're doing a fantastic job over there. There's hundreds of aircraft over there from all around the world now, uh, doing a brilliant job trying to um, contain these fires. It's just a shame, it's a dreadful shame when we lose one. Yeah. Because of the timing of our show today, we have a couple of listeners from Australia in uh, the chat room right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was sent in by Ray and Simon and Michel. Uh, Simon's in the chat room right now, says he was on the fire line in Victoria when it happened. And Greg, also in the chat room on Facebook, says the there was a service yesterday and the three crew were made honorary Australians and given awards. So Very cool. Yeah. Yes, thank you guys uh, for sending us the, uh, the uh, news articles regarding this. And thanks for those of you who are in the chat room helping us out. We do appreciate that. Okay, see, we don't ignore you. Um, Item B uh, is a crash in Corona, California. Four killed when a plane hits a berm, flips, catches fire at Corona Airport. Corona seems to be in the news quite a a bit lately. Um, The coronavirus. (laughs) Different reason, yeah. Corona beer. Um, Anyway, four people were killed. Uh, We just read that. During takeoff, the single-engine Bonanza A36 failed to lift off. Instead, the plane crashed through a fence, hit a berm to the east of the airport, landed upside down, and caught fire. The Corona Police Department and Corona Fire Department responded to the crash as flight personnel worked to extinguish the resulting brush fire. Uh, every, everybody ran over. Dorothy Vole, a witness, said, we brought fire extinguishers. Despite their best efforts, nearby pilots were not able to save those on board. Uh, the four victims in the place did suffer extensive injuries according to a spokesman for the Corona Fire Department. And they uh, said that once 80 gallons of fuel ignited, there was no chance of survival for those on the plane. Um, Anyway, let's see. Let's get to a little bit more uh, information about the accident. According to investigators, the pilot was flying eastbound on the runway, attempting to take off downwind. Mm -mm, Not a good idea. A departure some pilots said was not recommended at non-towered airports like Corona. Probably not recommended many places. In, in general, yeah. yeah. We, we don't recommend downwind takeoffs. Uh, a quote from Walt Snyder, a witness, said the wind's showing to go this direction, so normal departure is into the wind. Uh, Snyder, who was also a pilot, estimated that the aircraft might have been traveling 90 miles per hour when it crashed. 
Uh, he didn't pull back and he was too fast on the runways, he said. Then he flipped and then everybody was running and it started on fire. And then it had two explosions, which probably were the fuel tanks. Both the FAA and NTSB have been called in to investigate. Mm. So, yeah, sad. I, I don't know what more we can say other than, you know, if, right. if you've got a bit of wind, it's going to help. We try yeah. and. It's not worth the 10 minutes it takes to taxi down to the end-to-wind takeoff. Right. Exactly. May yeah. not be the cause, yeah. of course. It, no. could have, it could have been some kind of a mechanical thing, or maybe yep. even if they did take off into the wind, they still would have crashed. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, or the pilot might have been incapacitated during the takeoff run, True. lots of things. Yep. That's all we have to go with, though. So uh, hopefully we'll find out more as time goes on. Um, item C. Uh, did you guys have a chance to look at the video in this uh, news article? I yes. did not see the video. Yep. Oh, it's really good. <laughs> it is very good. Well, while you're talking, I'll watch the video. Okay. Um, a man was arrested Wednesday night. Uh, this is in Sarasota Bradenton Airport in Florida on the Gulf Coast. And this is from the HeraldTribune.com. Uh, a man was arrested Wednesday night after he temporarily blinded a pilot while pointing a laser at planes landing at Sarasota Braden International Airport, the Manatee County Sheriff's Office says. According to the sheriff's office, deputies responded to reports of a laser being pointed at planes. Ted Kohuth, uh, airport police chief, said that a Cessna Skyhawk with two people on board practicing takeoffs and landings was struck multiple times. Uh, its pilot said the laser hit him in the eyes, temporarily blinding him. The plane landed without incident. The pilot said his eyesight remained blurry after the incident. A United Airbus A320 was also struck while landing. The plane landed without incident. He has, uh, it has a capacity of 150 passengers, but they didn't know exactly how many people were on the flight. While a, a sheriff's officer, uh, office helicopter searched for the suspect, the suspect pointed the laser at the helicopter. Big very, mistake. <laughs> <laughs> not very smart. Oh, it's a smart person. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Helicopter video provided by the sheriff's office, office also shows the man throws objects at the aircraft. Yeah, he's trying to throw a brick at the helicopter. Apparently, he has a really good arm, or at least he thinks he does. Uh, yeah. Deputies found the suspect, Charles James Chapman Jr., 41, in the 8200 block of 25th Court East on a forklift. Chapman allegedly grabbed a hammer and made a striking motion toward them. Deputies used a taser to subdue him. They won. When Chapman was arrested, deputies found a laser in his pocket. He is charged with aggravated assault on an officer, pointing a laser at a pilot with injury, pointing a laser at a pilot without injury, and resisting arrast without violence. Uh, Kohath said, well, "Aiming didn't have much alternative. <laughs> yeah, <well, laughs> to be tased. <laughs> yeah, so uh, folks listening, uh, check out the show notes because you will uh, uh, be uh, given a link there. You can watch the video, and uh, some of it has it's a lot of uh, what do you call that uh, infrared uh, camera footage, and then it kind of switches back and forth between the infrared and the and the uh, normal view, and you can clearly see this guy." Uh, shining the laser at the helicopter and uh, clearly see the police officers coming in and swarming him. And, yes. uh, yeah, yeah, that was pretty good. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I, I hate the idea that he had tried to blind the, uh, helicopter pilot, the police helicopter pilot. But of course, if he hadn't, chances are he wouldn't have been caught because 
those of us in the CV world, when it happens to us, we can give a rough position. But unless the guy continues to do it and is uh, visible, easily visible to people on the ground, there's very little chance mm -hmm. of them actually mm -hmm. being captured in the act. But the fact that he carried on shining it at the uh, deputy, the, the, sorry, the sheriff's uh, office's helicopter, I uh, just did it for him. Yeah, thank you <laughs> for that. Yeah. I yes. like uh, Mike Kuyper's, uh, he says, taser beats laser. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> Good one. Ooh. We'll give it chat room award so far. All right. Thanks, Mike. Um, moving on to uh, some more sad news. Um, the Twin Tigers aerobatic team, and I didn't see them perform at Oshkosh, but apparently they were there. Did you catch that, either of you? I Yeah, I think I actually did see part of that show. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, I think they are... I think they're based down here south of Atlanta. Yes, in uh, Coweta County. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Twin Tigers aerobatic team pilot Mark Nowoszewski. Nowoszewski. Yeah, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, unfortunately. Uh, was killed Saturday when the small aircraft he was piloting crashed in Coweta County, Georgia. The crash also killed the son of his Twin Tigers teammate, Mark Sorensen. Um, so that was, that was his teammate, and his son's name is Nathan. Uh, the flight was not part of an air show practice or performance. According to one news report, Mark had just purchased the Bushby Mustang II, a two-seat home-built aircraft similar to a Vans RV series. Mark was a graduate of Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University and started flying aerobatics in 2006, eventually became a member of the U.S. Limited Aerobatic Team. As part of the Twin Tigers team, he was awarded the 2019 Bill Barber Award for Showmanship this past July. The act featured two Yak 55s painted in distinctive tiger-striped schemes and a special, special smoke ring generator. For night shows, Mark flew his Yak with Tron-like LED strips highlighting the wings and fuselage. Mark was also a Boeing 737 pilot for Southwest Airlines. Very sad. Yeah, I think I remember them doing their show at uh, Oshkosh, didn't I? Because there was certainly... I think you had some pictures of it. Yeah, there's certainly some aircraft that were um, leaving these smoke rings and then going around and doing aerobatics through them, mm -hmm. which looked oh, I very see impressive. That too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, this, is, this is dreadful because he's obviously a very skilled pilot, incredibly skilled pilot. Um, it's very sad to lose him and doubly so the the son of his uh, his mate, Mark Sorensen. Mm. Uh, so, you know, just really tough. Poor Mark. I mean, he lost his son and his, what I'm assuming is his very good friend and partner in the in this team. Yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, so, you know. Can't imagine. Mm. Okay. Uh, again, prayers and uh, thoughts for the families. Um, okay. Now, the big item in aviation that has been just consuming uh, at least here in the U.S., uh, media, especially the sports media, because there was a very prominent, um, they call basketball icon uh, aboard this uh, helicopter, um, a, a Sikorsky S-76B, and they were uh, leaving John Wayne Orange County uh, Airport and flying up to um, the Mamba uh, center, a sports center up in Thousand Oaks. And uh, on the morning of Sunday, I believe this past Sunday, mm -hmm. and they, um, it was, the weather wasn't great. It was uh, kind of foggy and low visibilities. And yeah, it's kind of like marginal VFR 
yes. in a lot of the area. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Very marginal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess this is kind of a, a normal thing for Kobe Bryant and his daughter and, and family uh, to uh, uh, lease this uh, helicopter to do this sort of thing. Um, in addition uh, to Kobe and his daughter, uh, there were also, uh, what, seven others, I think? There were seven others. Of, it was nine total yeah. on the helicopter. Mm-hmm. Uh, one pilot and then um, eight passengers. And uh, I'll talk a little bit more about some of the others who were on this uh, terrible, tragic crash. But anyway, they encountered some poor weather as they approached Burbank and Van Nuys Airport um, north of L.A. and uh, had to wait and hold for a bit to allow some IFR traffic into Burbank and uh, some traffic to take off out of Van Nuys. And then they were allowed to continue. And apparently under special VFR mm-hmm. uh, clearance at this time, uh, following um, major roadways, uh, Interstate 5, um, the US, uh, I'm not sure if it was a U.S. or a California Highway 18. And then uh, he, his plan was to pick up the uh, 101. And then finally make that last little bit of the trip over to the uh, uh, facility in Thousand Oaks. And unfortunately, uh, they're still not sure exactly what's happening. But I think a lot of people have uh, some, made some pretty good um, uh, guesses uh, what what happened to him. Uh, some great videos out there, by the way. Again, I'll mention Juan Brown. His Blancolirio channel does a very nice job of kind of explaining the differences between IFR and VFR and special VFR. Um, also, uh, there is somebody who took some of the data from the uh, radar uh, return, the radar information, and then was able to make kind of like one of these flyby kind of videos uh, on Google Earth. Using Google Earth, yeah, they took the KML data and put yeah. that in. And that kind of gives you, I think, one of the best um, uh, ideas about what possibly happened and you know him trying to follow this road and but then eventually uh, either the ceiling was coming down or the terrain was going up or both and ended up they're surmising that he was caught up in the clouds and tried to transition from the special vfr to ifr and then um, a lot of people are thinking that he just lost control of the airplane and or the uh, uh, helicopter and it crashed uh very, very sad story. Um, but, you know, the reason why it's such a big deal, at least here in the U.S. and in, in the media, is because of um, Kobe Bryant, the star power of uh, Kobe Bryant. But I just want to make sure on our show that we don't kind of gloss over the fact that there were several others on that helicopter that also crashed. And uh, the, the families are really grieving for them as well. A baseball coach, his wife and daughter, uh, Orange Coast College baseball coach John Altabelli. Uh, were on on board and passed away. Um, there was a, a lady named Christina Mauser, a coach and a mother. She's a basketball coach at a K eight private school in Orange County. And then finally, a uh, mother and daughter duo, Sarah Chester and her daughter Peyton, were also passengers aboard the helicopter, according to a Facebook post by Todd Schmidt, a former principal at Harborview Elementary, where uh, which Peyton once. Attended. Uh, so, uh, yeah, um, they're still investigating. The NTSB has been on this for uh, several days now, and they're trying to kind of put the pieces together. And uh, a lot of misinformation out there uh, by the media, not quite understanding. You know, we kind of understand that they're not going to, un- you know, quite grasp what 
it means when somebody is contacting SoCal Approach and asking for flight following and they said that you're too low for flight following. Mm -hmm. People thinking, well, that means they were too low to the ground. Well, no, they were too low to get the radar data to provide flight following. And flight following, of course, most of the people that listen to the show understand is not uh, somebody helping you navigate. It's somebody telling you about other traffic in the area. Yeah, it's a second set of eyes so that you right. mm-hmm. have warning about other traffic in the area. So what do you all think about this? Well, I'm probably least qualified, uh, having not done a lot of VFR flying and not a lot of helicopter flying. So I'll leave it to you guys. Well, I have not done any helicopter flying myself, although I was just listening to uh, one of the podcasts I like to listen to. And by the way, we're on their on their 24-hour stream, uh, the uh, No Agenda podcast. Uh, Adam Curry is the main host of the show, and he is a helicopter, or I don't know if he's a current helicopter pilot, but he holds ratings and actually owned a company that did this kind of work that uh, uh, had a, what do they call that, an air operator's permit uh, for doing helicopter work, and uh, he was a checked out on the... Uh, I can't remember the uh, the name of the helicopter. It's one of those Eurocopters, um, uh, not a Sikorsky, but anyway, regardless. Mm-hmm. Pardon me? Airbus? No, it wasn't an Airbus. It was um, okay. another another prominent, um, very fancy, modern helicopter. But uh, he, on his show today, which just ended, um, it was talking about the fact, uh, or talked a little bit about what he thinks may have happened in this scenario. And I think he did a really good job of uh, kind of explaining to the folks that listen to his show what uh, perhaps was uh, a possibility in this in this accident based on his experience flying helicopters. And uh, so uh, just thought I'd throw that out there. And uh, just real quick to point out what special VFR is, because there might be some questions about what that means. Um, it basically is... So, so VFR is obviously visual flight rules for a lot of the um, airspace in the United States. That basically means you need three statute miles of visibility. Uh, for the vast majority of the time, it's 500 uh, cloud clearance is 500 feet below, 1,000 feet above, or 2,000 feet horizontal. Um, if you're given this uh, special VFR clearance in a controlled airspace, um, so basically meaning that the um, the the conditions are less than VFR. Uh, you have to have at least one statute mile of visibility, and then you have to also remain clear of clouds. And that applies to class B, C, D, E. I told you about my story when I was getting checked out in at Riverside Airport mm, maybe. so that I could, in a 150, I was still in the Air mm-hmm. Force, but I'd just gotten my equivalency for, um, you know, the civilian ratings, commercial, um, multi-engine limited to centerline thrust. <laughs> And uh, oh, actually, no, I, d- I just passed a uh, check ride in Mississippi to get my commercial single engine rating. And so I went out to California and the whole purpose of that was to take up my mom and dad. And uh, so I went out to the airport to get checked out in the um, Cessna. Yes. And I'm sitting in the briefing room. And I mean, it is just probably conditions like this uh, crash occurred mm-hmm. and and I'm looking out the window and it's just like all you can see is fog. Everything's obscured. And the guy goes, OK, let's go. And I go, uh. What do you mean? He goes, well, we're going to go out to the airplane and get get you checked out. And I said, how can we possibly fly in this weather? And he goes, special VFR. And I went, you're kidding, right? He goes, nope. Yeah, it was crazy. It was mm-hmm. like. But- I have nev- never asked for a special VFR, and I don't anticipate that I ever will. Um, 
you know, a lot of folks will use it to depart a airport that is less than VFR conditions when they know they're going immediately to an area where they can be VFR, remain VFR. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I just, uh, I'm not paid to fly at this point. I don't have get there itis and I can wait for better weather conditions. Right. Even with an instrument rating. Oh, yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. and. You know, I, I mentioned all the uh, all of the passengers that uh, perished in this, and one person who also perished was the pilot. And let me see if I can find the information on. And while him. you're looking for that, that's not to say that special VFR shouldn't be used. It's there, and it's for for a reason. It's just that myself personally, yes, yes. my feelings on it. Right. It's. I'm sure that there are some legitimate uses for. Oh, that. they're they're completely are. That's why it's there as a yeah. as a uh, a thing. Well, the helicopter's pilot was uh, Ara or Era Zaboyan, according to a former colleague and neighbor. And by the way, I, I watched a um, an interview from one of the uh, local news affiliates uh, with the pilot Kurt Dietz, who worked at the Island Express Helicopter Company with Zaboyan. Uh, said he considered Zaboyan a friend and a trustworthy pilot. And uh, uh, let's see. According to the FAA's pilot certification certification database, Zaboyan is an instrument rated or instrument certified pilot who earned his commercial pilot's license in 2007. He is also a certified flight instructor for instrument instruction for helicopter pilots. The database also shows Zaboyan was up to date on FAA required annual medical exams. And this was as of, I think, June of last year, probably the last time he got a, a medical certificate. So, yeah, um, sad story. Um, hoping that we'll find out more information about what actually happened here and hopefully yeah. we'll be able to learn from it. Yes. You know, we always say we want more information about things and then a lot of times we just don't get it because the nature of the incident is not high profile enough. This is one where, we're, where we will certainly have a lot more information in the weeks and months to come, I think. Agreed. Um, interesting. I actually did not know this. Um, for special VFR for fixed wing pilots, um, if you're requesting special VFR at nighttime, um, you have to be instrument rated and have an aircraft that is IFR uh, equipped. Uh, but that same, uh, at least for pilots being um, IFR certified, that is not a requirement for rotary wing at night. Hmm. I did not know that. But we should say, I don't think that this This wasn't at night. at night. No, yeah. this this was just something right. that i learned i didn't that, know that either know. but that makes sense it makes yeah it makes more sense for for helicopters no i mean it makes sense regarding the uh the fixed wing thing for mm. you know if you're going to do be doing this at night then you had best be instrument rated and yes. the airplane instrument instrument yes. uh, qualified or certified exactly. oh i can yeah i can't imagine doing special vfr at oh my night. gosh no. <laughs> no. yeah why not just do ifr and a lot of people have asked that about this um accident why not why didn't he just fly ifr and well the facility that he was going to mm-hmm. was not an airport or a or a special helipad, helipad that has like an instrument approach procedure to right. it. So at some point, I mean, he could have started, I guess, IFR, but I guess he didn't need to. He, he it was you know, clearly VFR until he got up toward the mm-hmm. toward the mountains, basically. And uh, that's when he would have had to, to transition to special VFR or just land at, a, at an airport and just told the passengers hey you, you need to take a taxi or a, an uber to go the rest of the distance and you know i'm sure that i may- guess that's the part of the problem of flying high um personalities you know well-known personalities around you don't want to let them down you uh, you don't want to get to the destination there's probably a time a window that they need to be there 
and there is a lot of commercial pressure uh, to get the job done because, uh, you know, you don't want to let these people down. Yeah. Uh, whereas if he'd been there on his own, he probably would have gone, nah, not important. I'll turn around and go back, land somewhere else, uh, or just as Steph said, do it on another day. So uh, that's that's a difficult thing, and that may be an aspect that we will end up considering when mm-hmm. we find out more about it. I'm sure that has to be uh, some factor in this whole thing. Um, by the way, Fabian, thank you, uh, told us that uh, the Eurocopter uh, actually became Airbus helicopters. So we were both right. So, uh, Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know if it was one of those, though. But I know, I mean, nine No, it wasn't. It was a Sikorsky, but I was talking about Adam oh, okay. Curry, and right. he was checked out on the, on the gotcha. Eurocopter gotcha. Airbus, I guess. Okay. You know, just trying to keep it above 50%. You know, which is a, well, it's a struggle, a struggle in, the, in the vicinity. Yeah, anyway. yeah. <laughs> yeah something close. Um, the next item here, <laughs> I love the headline. Iranian aircraft slides onto highway after pilot misses runway. <laughs> misses he's, in quotes. He's, he's really missing it right now. <laughs> really. I don't see a runway in the picture. No, uh, I don't either. No. Uh, Were you able to see some of the videos? Yeah. Oh, yeah. man. Such, I mean, people, listeners, uh, please do check the show notes and make sure that you see if you haven't already seen the uh, the one where they're um well here let me tell you what happened first and then we'll get to the videos an iranian passenger plane ended up belly down which is the best way i think preferable yeah, yeah. in the middle of a highway after reportedly skidding off the runway during a botched landing that's a good description botched landing two of the 136 passengers on board suffered leg injuries in the incident in the city of mashar Medic said the Caspian Airlines McDonnell Douglas MD-83 was flying there from Tehran. State TV quoted a provincial aviation official as saying that the pilot landed the aircraft too late and this caused him to miss the runway. So I'm assuming what they mean is they probably landed too far down the runway and didn't have enough Mm -hmm. runway left at the end to keep it on the runway and uh, exited the uh, runway and I guess, on the outskirts or uh, periphery of the airport and on this very busy, looks like at least a four-lane highway or big road. They call it a boulevard, which is... A boulevard. Makes it sound very nice. Yes. Let's uh, park the airplane in a boulevard. (laughs) Yes, he did. He did park the airplane without any landing gear uh, left on it. Um, A reporter who was on board the aircraft said that the back wheel of of the plane had broken off. Oh, the back wheel. You got to have that back wheel. Uh, Just and, the one? Yeah. And that <laughs> okay. the plane had skidded on its fuselage. Yeah, all the wheels are gone based on what I saw in the videos. Anyway, um, so on this one video, it's so funny because, I mean, I, I can say funny because nobody nobody died and I don't think anybody was seriously injured uh, except for maybe the um, the egos of the pilots. But uh, the peop- the front door uh, is open mm-hmm. and people are just walking off the airplane like they were just deplaning, like a normal flight. Exactly. Yeah, like, going okay, back I guess I'll get off now. To yeah. pick their luggage up and come back off with it. <laughs> just, like, this is fine, right? Yeah. And they're just, just walking fine. around. I'm thinking, where are these people going? They're just all walking away. I'm thinking, well, we're here. <laughs> like, we arrived yeah. at our destination. Taxi, taxi. <laughs> grab a cab and yeah. go to work, I guess. If you checked your bags then, and I'm, I'm assuming that they're looking for a ride to the terminal so they can get their, well, wait a minute, the luggage <laughs> is still on board. This. <laughs> Never mind. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um very uh very amusing uh video so check it out very yeah and very fortunate that really no one was hurt here really you know, yeah. not only on the plane but i mean on the, the highway 
Yeah, that's Apart kind of from a mirror- landing deep. Do we have anything else? Uh, uh, any information on? I don't know. Is this on videos? I or? wonder if this is. Uh, I haven't looked on uh, Aviation Herald to see if uh, Simon has has given us any more information about it. Have you all been? Here? Why don't we do that right now while we're while we're talking while we're kind of just hanging out with each other, talking aviation? Let me uh, pull up the Aviation Herald, which is my favorite website for this sort of thing. And uh, let's see, this happened a couple of days ago, and it is called Caspian, right? Yep, Caspian MD-83. And uh, let's see, on January 27th, 2020, in the evening, Tehran time, Iran's AIB released their preliminary report in Persian, stating that the captain was the pilot flying, the aircraft had departed, runway 29 left, had flown about 30 minutes, no, 50 minutes, and landed on Mashar's runway 13, but overran the end of the runway. There have been no injuries. Um, According to ground observers at the airport, the aircraft landed long, went through the airport perimeter fence, and came to a stop at the expressway. Tower activated the boulevard. Uh, Tower activated emergency services, who arrived at the aircraft within four minutes. Wow, that's pretty good, actually. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but that's all we know. And if it's, if there's any other information out there and it's not in the aviation Herald, then it's probably not available. I think. Oh, we'll I, find out. Looks like not. the weather was nice. Uh, winds were not yeah. strong and cav okay. So hmm. we'll have to, uh, we'll have to revisit this hopefully. Okay. Um, moving on to item G. Um, this is interesting. Delta is ordered to pay $50,000 $50, fine over allegations it discriminated against Muslim passengers. And uh, the, this is from CNN. The U.S. Department of Transportation ordered Delta Airlines on Friday to pay a $50,000 fine to settle allegations it violated a federal law by discriminating against Muslim passengers. Um, the department released a consent order that alleges Delta engaged in discriminatory conduct against three Muslim passengers on two separate incidents in 2016. Wow, that's several years ago, including one flight from Paris to Ohio and another flight from Amsterdam to New York City. In both instances, the passengers were removed from their seats after flight attendants and uh, fellow passengers became nervous, citing their behavior. Uh, The order notes that the captain of an aircraft is the final authority as to the operation of that aircraft, including any decision to refuse to transport a passenger. But the order says that authority does not allow discrimination based on race, color, national origin, religion, ethnicity, or sex. In both cases, Delta's corporate security department informed the flight crews of, quote, no red flags regarding the passengers. So they were saying, uh, we think it's okay. The airline said in a statement to CNN that it strives to model inclusion. While we understand that our best customer service was not reflected in how the incident was handled, we disagree with the Department of Transportation's contention that Delta engaged in discriminatory conduct, said Delta spokeswoman Emma Kate Protis. For that reason, we have worked to improve our investigative process since these incidents, and we have supporting programs, policies, training, and procedures that back up our commitments in this area. Um, in the order, Delta wrote that it disagreed with the, the department's contention that it engaged in discriminatory conduct. Here's a quote from them. While Delta does not dispute that each of these two incidents could have been handled differently, Delta asserts that this fact does not necessarily lead to the conclusion that Delta acted improperly. So that's an interesting uh, phrase, I think. 
Um, so uh, in the Paris incident, a married couple, both U.S. citizens, were boarding a flight from Paris to Cincinnati, Ohio, when a fellow passenger raised concerns with a flight attendant. Although the passenger did not explain everything that made her nervous, according to the order, uh, the flight attendant stated that she walked through the cabin on a routine task. She observed Mr. X texting on his cell phone, not his real name, uh, using the word Allah several times. As the flight attendant approached Mr. X, the flight attendant reports that Mr. X made eye contact with her but did not smile and reached over to pat his wife's hand. That's kind of strange. Another flight attendant walked through the cabin and observed Mr. X texting on his phone, and as she passed, he changed his screen. The two flight attendants shared their observations with the captain, who then requested security officers remove the passengers for additional vetting. The couple was interviewed and cleared before the plane departed, but the captain refused to accept the passengers back on board because the flight attendants were uncomfortable having the couple travel on the flight. It appears that, but for Mr. and Mrs. X's perceived religion, Delta would not have removed or denied them reboarding, the order says. Um, anyway, uh, there was the Amsterdam flight several days later returned to the gate over concern, passengers' concerns that a fellow passenger had received a small package from a person of similar ethnicity in the gate area, according to the order. The plane began departing, but returned to the gate because the flight attendants expressed without any intervening incident that they remained uncomfortable. Moreover, even though security inspected the area surrounding Mr. A's seat and his baggage was offloaded, Mr. A was not subjected to additional security screening prior to being rebooked. Um, Delta said that both flight attendants observed the passenger switch seats while on board and behave nervously. So, uh, the order requires Delta to not commit additional violations and requires additional civil rights training for Delta employees. That training must make clear that in the absence of a valid safety or security concern, passenger or crew discomfort is not an acceptable basis to deny transportation. Uh, Delta said that after both incidents, the airline reviewed and clarified its procedures to investigate suspicious activity to make them more collaborative and objective than they were at the time of the incidents. So, looks like they were slapped on the hand. Uh, they made changes to policies, procedures, etc. But you know the uh, the fact still remains. Now, let me tell you, at my airline, Acme, um, we if we have some kind of a incident like this, some suspicion that a passenger might you know might not be someone we want to have on board the airplane, uh, we can convene convene something called the. Uh, let's see if I can think of a different name. Um, a, a, we'll call it a conflict security intervention team or something like that, uh, where we can bring together um, people from various uh, departments uh, to discuss the incident so that the captain doesn't have, you know, a limited, you know, he gets more information or he or she gets more information about the whole thing. That includes ACME uh, corporate security people. Uh, it includes the uh, lead flight attendant, it, it includes the gate agent, it includes uh, the pilot slash pilots, and also the dispatcher of the flight, and uh, sometimes even more folks on, on the team to get together. But they discuss the incident or the issue and then make recommendations as to what they think should happen. But again, as the FAA stated, the bottom line is also always with the captain. However, caveat. If you, as a captain, make a decision like this, you should be prepared to uh, be able to explain how you came to the decision. And, you know, so in other words, you're going to probably have to talk to some people about it. So 
be quite sure that you really want to do something like this. Yeah. So here's my my thing about all of this. Um, if you get on any form of um, transportation here in the United States, there's especially public transportation. So uh, trains, buses, things like that. Um, there are signs um, quite frequently that say, if you see something, say something. But it doesn't really make clear what that something has to be. It's really just things that make people nervous or concerned that something nefarious is happening. Um, so, you know, how, how far does that extend? Uh, I don't know. But I guess that's why you have to have this kind of collaborative effort to try and make sure that you've arrived at as many of the facts as possible and then then make a decision that's appropriate. Mm-hmm. Nick, what do you think about this? I think we discussed this at quite a bit of length when it first happened, because it was a while ago, but I do recall uh, mentioning or having these two instances of mentioning uh, them. Um, Unless you've got strong grounds, I don't think you've got a leg to stand on, and I don't think these are strong grounds. I think this was uh, following some uh, terrorist activity, either in the States or in Europe, um, that probably caused a heightened level of anxiety amongst the crew. And it doesn't take much then for people to be dead set against someone saying, well, I'm not going to have them on my aircraft because they look a bit like the people who might have done these acts of terror. And that is not a strong ground. You've got to be really careful in these circumstances to be fair and above board. Uh, and I just think because uh, of the, the world situation at the time, it might have influenced their better judgment. Uh, but yeah. They made a, mm-hmm. a decision that well, they probably wouldn't have done at, at another time. And I kind of understand uh, trying to put myself in that captain's or those captain's uh, shoes. Uh, when you have your flight attendant crew expressing just being uncomfortable about having these passengers on board, you know, I can, I can kind of see that would be a strong influence, uh, to not, uh, accept the passengers on board. But I think, uh, sometimes you just have to do the right thing and just, uh, realize that you may not have a great relationship, uh, for, for a while with, uh, those particular flight attendants. But, uh, yeah, I can, I can see the, all the different pressures that might've been put upon the captain, but as the FAA and the companies have said, you know, you have to do the right thing and that there's nothing that besides being uncomfortable with the situation, uh, then you must allow these passengers to continue to. Uh, and ride. particularly after they have then been checked. Right. Mm-hmm. And cleared. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you go, okay, well, that's okay. fine. Yeah. We've been through the procedure. Everything's okay now. No, apparently it wasn't okay. So right. you go, well, come on, folks. Yep. I'm just wondering how long it takes for someone standing there to actually be able to read someone's cell phone screen multiple times, you know. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. Well, like, we know that people make a very quick decision on whether mm-hmm. they're going to like someone or not or trust uh-huh. someone or not. It's it's almost an instinctive reaction and uh, uh, it's quite hard once you've formed that opinion to uh to you know argue way out of it or to even you know even the slightest thing's going to just do nothing but reinforce your your prejudice. And, you know, if you're a, a religious person, um, there are all kinds of apps for smartphones and stuff that have prayers on them. And, you know, obviously, if you're of Muslim descent, uh, it's instead of saying God, it's going to say Allah or Allah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Oh, exactly. So, yeah. you know, it doesn't necessarily so, mean that 
<laughs> that, oh, this person has a law on their phone. That must mean they're a terrorist. Yeah. Exactly. So an element of education comes in here as well. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, um, moving on then, another crash. Uh, this one, a military crash. The U.S. Air Force announced that one of their airplanes uh, crashed in eastern Afghanistan on Monday. Colonel Sonny Leggett said, while the cause of the crash is under investigation, there are no indications that the crash was caused by enemy fire. The aircraft crashed in the Dayak district, Ghazni province, an area with a strong Taliban presence. It's unclear how many people were on board, but we do know since this was written that there were two on board. And they were Lieutenant Colonel Paul Voss, 46 years old, assigned to the ACC at J.B. Langley Eustis, and Captain Ryan Fanouf, 30, assigned to the 34th Bomb Squadron at Ellsworth Air Force Base. And this airplane is, uh, what do they call it, an E-11A. Um, never heard of an E-11A, but uh, everybody else knows it as a Bombardier executive jet. Um, apparently, I was, the guy I was flying with on this last trip uh, flew uh, C-17s in the U.S. Air Force, and he uh, spent um, several deployments over to Afghanistan and Iraq, and he knew all about this particular jet. And basically, it's a it's an airplane that has all these fancy electronics, communications, things. And he said it's, they they can like connect people using different communication systems. And like if somebody's on VHF, they can uh, trans transition it to UHF so that everybody can hear everybody else. So it's uh, for um, facilitating uh, better communications uh, with the uh, air and ground forces, and also other you know in air. Um, you know, missions and uh, basically just goes around and I must fly around in circles or something like that. And then after it's been uh, used in one area, then they may be dispatched to go to a different area and do the same kind of thing. So um, I didn't even know that, uh, this airplane existed, never heard of it, but uh, that's what I kind of gathered from the information from my first officer. So. The uh, Taliban claimed responsibility for this, didn't they? Yes. Uh, and they also uh, attacked the uh, forces that came to try and recover the uh, the bodies and the examine the wreckage. Uh, and created quite a firefight. Uh, and um, so, you know, claiming responsibility is not the same as actually downing an aircraft. But mm -hmm. uh, we know that after, you know, the story of the A300 that was had two uh, Edoir missiles fired at it, one of which nearly brought it down. But there are Edoir missiles floating around this area. Um, do we know what, uh, can you remind me what stage of flight it was? Was it shortly after takeoff? I don't, I'm not sure it says. I think I, I gathered that it was up at cruise altitude or whatever that is. Well, that's probably going to be fairly high, in yeah. which case they're not going to have anything that'll reach up there. So in sure. that case, the Taliban's uh, claim is probably just convenient. Yeah, what it said here, uh, it didn't say what uh, state of uh, stage of flight it was in, but it says the Taliban are not believed to have had the sorts of anti-aircraft missiles needed to bring down a high-flying aircraft, which yeah, high-flying. Like high yeah, that does. But they, and they had time to put a Mayday call out, but... Um, other than that, we don't really know much about it. No. Again, and we may not ever, actually, 
uh, find out. Which I to a certain extent is a good thing because yeah. the military needs to keep its secrets. We all know that. Sure. Mm-hmm. I'm that very glad even... though, that the special forces eventually managed to get in and uh, recover the um, the deceased. So, well done, guys, and thanks very much for doing that. I'm sure the families will appreciate your work very much indeed. Yeah. And at the same time, it actually said that they did uh, destroy some of the sensitive equipment so it did not fall into uh, <laughs> unwanted. That was probably yeah. one of the most important parts of that mission. It's just mm-hmm. taking yeah. care of things that they don't want to fall onto other hands. Yeah. All right. And then finally in the news, uh, we have um, some positive news for Boeing, which is a uh, unusual thing recently. Uh, Boeing's massive wing folding 777X just flew for the first time. Just a few, I was watching it live. Actually, uh, they had a stream going on. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, I wasn't there. I was just here in my, in my house or I might've been on the trip on a trip. Maybe I was on a trip. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, the Boeing 777X made its maiden flight in Everett, Washington on January 25th. When it's on the ground, its wingtips fold upwards. Uh, let's see. The newest passenger plane landed in Seattle. Its wingtips did something new to the world of commercial aviation. They folded upwards as the plane was still rolling down the tarmac. And not for takeoff, by the way, or landing on the, on the runway. They're talking about uh, probably while it was taxiing in or taxiing out. Uh, when the new wide-body 777X enters service, it will seat as many as 426 people. Wow. Can't imagine that many people on an airplane. A lot. Um, in its longest of two configurations. But while the size of the plane's fuselage is what allows it to carry so many people, it's the the design of the wings that really sets it apart from an engineering perspective. In both models of the new aircraft, the 7788 and 7779, the wings will measure 235 feet from tip to folding tip. That's wider than the wings on existing Boeing 777s or the 787, and about double the wingspan of a 737. Now, I don't know, uh, anybody out there know, or perhaps you do, Nick, do you know what the wingspan is on the Airbus A380? It's probably... Mm, No, but it's slightly more than a 340, but that's all I can remember. (laughs) Yeah, maybe somebody can uh, look that up or somebody in the chat room. Okay. 262 feet. Okay, so that's another 30 feet longer, basically, than the uh, 777X. But the difference is that, as we all know, one of the one of the um, negatives of operating the A380, uh, in addition to the fact that its, its footprint is very, very heavy and it has to have special, specially fortified taxiways and, and ramp surfaces to support the weight uh, distribution of the of the jet, uh, the wingspan is probably its most limiting factor in operating at various places because it just doesn't fit into most um, airport terminal gates because of the fact that the wings are so so wide. And so what Boeing thought of uh, was, let, let's try to make this a, a bigger wingspan, get a little bit more lift, and uh, but still make it such that it can still use the gates that are in most abundance out there. Uh, basically the the same uh, kind of footprint or wing print or whatever you want to call it as a, a regular 777. And uh, so they came up with this idea. Of course, now Nick is very familiar with airplanes that you've probably flown some uh, whose that their wings actually folded up 
I'm, I'm, I'm guessing. I don't know. Have you? Oh, yeah, the, both the Phantom and the Hornet had wing fold systems. Uh, so, yeah, I'm very familiar. Okay. Um, and I think it's a quite an elegant solution uh, to make sure that this aircraft can operate from you know all the uh, airports that an existing 777 can. Because one of the drawbacks of the 380 is that um, there aren't that many uh, airports where it can operate from. Uh, mm-hmm. And you don't want to have an aircraft with such a big wingspan that you're limited on diversions and uh, places you can actually uh, go to. It rather defeats the object. Uh, this is this is quite a good idea. I, I like this idea. Um, I'm sure the technology on uh, how and when it folds has been well thought out and uh, engineered. And, of course, they'll have to keep a close eye and do regular inspections of that mechanism to make sure that there's no fatigue because it's obviously uh, a fatigue point that will occur. Um, but I think the additional weight of having those uh, wing folding and the locking mechanisms will be more than offset by the fact that it's built uh, a great deal with carbon composites and uh, other uh, modern materials that reduce the weight of it. I think it's going to be a very successful aeroplane. I think it's, it looks gorgeous. Uh, I think it's going to be very popular. It'll be uh, um, uh, quite a world beater. It's going to be in a real stiff competition for the uh, A350-1000. Mm-hmm. And I'm delighted to see Boeing having some success and some good news to push out. Right. And the reason I say that mainly is because we don't want the world to become a one-aircraft manufacturer world where Airbus rules the roost because that is never good. I'm a great fan of competition. And I think whilst Boeing and Airbus can leapfrog each other in technology, they'll both continue to strive to work uh, to better the other company, and uh, they will be competitive with prices. And uh, that makes a very healthy industry. I despair at the idea that one or other of those two manufacturers would Get a such a dominant get into such a dominant position that they can control what happens in the industry. So, I think this is really good news. I think that uh, in most cases, competition is a good thing. It ain't Boeing, I ain't going. All right, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to fly on this actually to see what it looks like and how it works, and uh, mm-hmm. it does look a very elegant aeroplane. Captain Nick, you mentioned the uh, the use of extended use of composites, and that's really the reason they were able to do this new wing is because the uh, previous wings were aluminum and not composite or mostly aluminum. And I guess this new wing is it's much more composite material, lighter, and uh, they were able to extend the uh, the wing and uh, yeah, using the winglet very system. Very high aspect ratio, which means it's a very efficient. You, you know, if you look at the wing of a glider, very long and thin uh, because that aspect ratio gives high levels of lift um, and low levels of drag, and that's the kind of wing they've gone for. So uh, I think from that point of view, it's going to be a, a really uh, good performing uh, aircraft. Um, interesting, uh, Diana. Uh, mentions the same thing that I was going to uh, when you watched the video of it taking off, Jeff. Uh, I realize it's probably very light at takeoff, but uh, it it barely rotated when the main gear were off the ground, and I noticed it had an extremely flat attitude uh, for landing as well. Uh, uh, what do you think that's about? Do you think that's going to be normal for that aircraft? I don't know. Um, it might have something to do with the fact, as you mentioned, very light. Um, I know they they had enough fuel to go up and fly it for what two or three hours, I believe. But um, I'm not sure. 
Um, that I, I'm thinking it's mostly because it was so light. As we I know, think you're probably right. It's just that I'm used to seeing airliners pitch yeah. to ten or twelve degrees mm -hmm. before the gear come off. Yeah, the the nose wheel had hardly lifted, and commentators were saying, and I think they're probably right, is that they used quite conservative uh, rotate speeds. I suspect to give them mm -hmm. plenty of margin. Yeah. In which case, it was probably faster than it would be flying at rotate than it would be in normal operations when they've got it all fined down. Right. Um, but it's just that the landing speed as well. Perhaps it was a bit higher than it would be in its normal operating uh, regime, but it was extremely flat uh, on the approach and barely needed to flare. So we were talking about wheelbarrowing um, on a, mm -hmm. the very last show, and I yep. was thinking, oh, geez, I, I hope that isn't going to be something that the aircraft is prone to. I doubt it very much. but uh, Yeah, I hope not. Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I like that theory of using, uh, for the first flight of an aircraft, having those margins built in for speeds. Yeah. That's probably... yeah. I think that's quite likely mm -hmm. the reason. Yeah, I don't think I've, I recall ever seeing the first flight of any other airplane. So maybe maybe that's kind of a normal thing. I don't know. But, you know, then again, yeah. the ones that I think of are the ones that, like at Farnborough International Air Show where they... <laughs> They, oh, they're like, so light that they just, you yeah. know. They, they hoof it off. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Good question, though. I don't know the answer to it. Oh. Guess we'll have to watch a few more of their uh, test flights and see what happens. Oh, well, I'm sure. I hope we'll see plenty of it because mm -hmm. uh, they're going to probably have quite an extensive test regime. And, uh, and I look forward to it. And, and quite often you get a decent uh, documentary about it. Um, you know, they did. One about the certification of the original Triple Seven, which I watched with great interest. You know, there's fabulous scenes of it's doing its uh, maximum weight rejection, and you know mm. all the steam and the yeah. <laughs> smoke coming off the brakes, and then they do uh, they plow it through deep water to see where all the water splashes and will the engines be. Uh, ingest water and be flamed out and all these fantastic tests they do they fly them in incredibly cold regimes and incredibly hot countries the documentary was superb and i think uh, if you're going to go and fly this aircraft to be able to see the uh, lengths that they go through to test it i think um you know you'll be um, very uh, confident about the machine when you get on board what's the one that they do that they like over rotated on purpose and like oh the yeah unstick? drag, drag oh, the tail yeah, down. They drag yeah. The tail. Mm -hmm. yeah exactly right like yeah they do they, test or something i don't know yeah they uh, so it's the lowest possible speed you can unstick the main gear so they rotate yeah. well below the normal rotate speed and then run a bumper special bumper on the tail along the runway with this thing just scraping along sparks colors it's great <laughs> <laughs> well that's that's real test pilot stuff that that's is. what we live for <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right well you know what time it is ah it's time to get to know the apg crew at least uh, find out what has been going on with us since the last show and uh let's see steph you weren't with us uh, for, for the entire time. Well, you were with us even for this When was portion. our last show? Uh, last week. <laughs> okay. Thank you. <laughs> um, what was it? Wednesday, I think, of last week? Um, it must have been Wednesday. I think so. Yeah. I was over at Liz's house mm -hmm. and uh, had a great time. By the way, uh, we didn't mention it uh, because we it had not yet occurred, uh, but uh, Liz uh, made me just an absolutely scrumptious uh, dinner of uh, shrimp uh, pasta with pesto sauce mm. it was really really good she's quite a cook so liz i can't wait to have some more of your cooking and thanks for that special massage 
Nej, det skal jeg ikke. Too information. Just turned like 100 shades of red there. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding, of course. <laughs> I was hoping that I'd embarrass somebody, probably more me than anybody else. <laughs> uh, anyway, so uh, what have you been up to? Yeah, so uh, I think I did mention, uh, I think I mentioned on the last show, I was off to Chicagoland for a teaching course for work, um, actually yeah. providing instruction to folks learning uh, to do the types of injections that I do for work. Nothing flying related other than the fact that I took a airplane to get there. Thank you very much, uh, Southwest Airlines, for the safe and on-time flight into Midway Airport, um, the place where we, we do the conferences about 15 minutes down the road from Midway, and it's much easier and logistically convenient to go there as opposed to O'Hare. So, um, yeah, uh, nice uh, flight over. Um, kind of some typical Chicago weather, uh, kind of snowing lightly, but kind of on the warm side. It was above freezing, but still snowing which uh, is always interesting to me. Uh, so not really sticking to the ground or anything too treacherous. Um, the next day it was kind of, uh, next two days, it was kind of this wintry mix of rain and snow and sleet. And uh, I have a lot of, um, addition to doing, in addition to doing work stuff there, have a lot of uh, family and friends in the area. So um, some of them are also runners. So we went for a long run on Saturday afternoon, and it was just this horrible sleety snow, like really windy. Every time you turned into the wind, it was pelting your eyeballs, and not not the most pleasant. But um, mm. I had my my Chicago hot dog, Nick, my Portillo's hot dog. Oh, you uh, lucky! Guy. I like him I too. Uh, well, Nick was Nick made <laughs> much as me. sure to make a special mention of, of having them. So I did have one. Um, unfortunately, I ate it before I went running, which was probably not the the greatest idea but um oh and then had a repetition during the run <laughs> uh, that's perhaps. just like reliving the experience yes, exactly it? and they're so good i wanted to experience it <laughs> um and then had a lovely evening that night um with a lot of my girlfriends uh in town so that was nice to to catch up we've known each other for about 30 years at this point uh so that's brilliant yeah it was very nice and then a uneventful ride home on sunday Oh, well, you had an easy time. Yeah, it wasn't too bad. A um, couple of late nights, I feel like I'm still trying to. Um, some of the uh, networking, uh, which Sir Neville of PTUK will understand when you're with work colleagues, networking often occurs and uh, into um, some of the later hours of the evening occasionally. So sleep was a little on the lacking side, but all good. Did your, uh, did your lectures go down well? Yeah, um, this time around, I actually did not have to give a lecture. I was just... Um, there for the hands-on teaching part of the course. So we actually use cadavers and uh, live x-ray. So that sounds like get fun. In. Yeah. It, it, these are, Hey, these are hands-on procedures. You got to have hands-on experience uh, doing them just like anything. It's our version of the SIM. So, okay. Kind yeah. of. We don't see many dead bodies in the SIM. Well, not, well, not, not normally. Not normally. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Although we, that's, anyway. at, uh, at Acme, we see them in the parking lot. Um, oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah, anyway. Not a good, not a good, uh, no, that, situation that there. Probably, uh, move on from that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> quickly, quickly. Yes. But anyway, um, yeah, that was my, that was my weekend and just been back at work and trying to catch up on sleep and life and everything else. And I need to get out flying soon because I have not done that in a long time, but um, I'm going to take a look at my schedule Even here. The for... listeners are starting to notice. I know they've noticed. I know it's been <laughs> bad. Um, 
looking at my schedule for February to get out and get back into the swing of things. So we shall see. Excellent. I, I look forward to have you take me up flying someday. That would be fun. Yeah, we should do that. Yeah. That'd be fun. And then she'll jump out and leave you to it. <laughs> but, like, you got this, right? I might have. You're, you're a pilot? I might be able to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't know. We'll see. A little bit of experience. Yeah. All right. Well, good. Um, any Anything, any big plans uh, for you between now and uh, next week? Uh, yeah, I have to, uh, um, surprisingly, another trip for me, but this time it's a uh, family-related business down to Florida. Oh, okay. So, yeah. All right. Well, good. Um, let's see. Nick, how about you, sir? Going to keep this short and sweet. Okay. Uh, the last show I did mention that after the, well, during the Cywell uh, Aviation Museum lecture I gave, I met one of our listeners. Now, mm -hmm. obviously, I was trying to recruit the entire room to becoming listeners, and I hope at least some of them will be tuning in. But Neil Holding has actually written in to say, I was the bloke you uh, you met. And uh, thank you very much, uh, Freddie and Neil. Um, and uh, he we we chatted for a short time sadly uh it was all a bit busy and uh you never have enough time with these things but he did uh write and say how much he enjoyed the talk which he's obliged to do since he's a listener um and uh it was great to meet you i also talked of south african airways 747 the helderberg uh, incident which might make a possible plane tail so thank you for that suggestion neil i'm going to uh, take a look at that and uh, see. And that, by the way, is number 14 in the feedback, so we don't have to do that anymore. I was just but... going to, I was writing a private note going, <laughs> okay, we're going to skip that one in the feedback. <laughs> so thanks very much indeed for uh, giving me your name again, Neil. I'm, my apologies for forgetting it. And uh, the other uh, bloke I'm going to uh, bump into, I hope, over the weekend is uh, Dave Gooch, who's uh, another of our listeners. He's uh, uh, a 737 pilot in the States, but he is uh, British and his family come from uh, up north a little way. And he's visiting them and on his way through London, he said, any chance we could get together? So I think we're going to try and touch base on Sunday and uh, he might come down here and uh, take him to my local uh, for a Sunday roast, which sounds like fun. So I hope you can make it over, Dave. And if you're anywhere near Atlanta, can you bring a pair of earphones? Because <laughs> Jeff's got me a pair of earbuds that I'm trying to get hold of. Yeah. Um, uh, don't worry if you can't. Um, yeah, send me, uh, send me an email, uh, jeff at uh, airlinepilotguy.com, and let go. me know where you live, and I can. if we have enough time, I'll, I'll send them to you. And then well, you can we'll be lucky because I, I think he's probably uh, departing tomorrow, so no, I think that's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Forget it. Anyway, uh, I'll, I'll try and remember to take my tape recorder so uh, I can record Dave's uh, uh, dulcet tones and find out a little about him um other than that uh no everything's fine and beautiful quite quiet here and i'm busy trying to get uh you know a couple of plane tails uh in, in the bag as it were so that i don't have to worry over the next coming weeks about uh, producing them i've done a couple of cheats lately talking about myself which i never like doing nearly so much for talking about other people so try and get those done but no that's it for me sir well you never need worry about doing those nick i mean we love them but you know don't put so much pressure on yourself to always have one ready for the show well you don't you you don't want me to do anymore yeah that's what i'm trying to say if you're reading between oh. the lines yeah don't worry about oh, that anymore. Well. no i'm just kidding that's one of them <laughs> and that's so, the end of plain tales yeah no 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 no. Oh, okay. just kidding right, as, them. as everybody knows it's one of the <laughs> best parts of the show if not the best the part best part other oh, than oh. the end um <laughs> so 
hopefully quite soon. Speaking of uh, Dave Gooch, uh, you'll hear his name soon when I talk about the Coffee Fund. He is a uh, a new patron of the show, so that's cool. Um, anywho, uh, let's see. Is it my turn? I think so. Yeah. All right. I, ladies and gentlemen, are here with uh, one of our Coffee Fund cadre members, Coffee Bar Club members, uh, David Lieb, or Dave Lieb, and uh, we've been just having a great time here in Memphis, Tennessee, and ironically, we were talking about the, uh, the, the genesis of the, uh, of the show, and uh, for those of you who have listened to the show for a very, very long time may remember that I started the podcast uh, back in, I think it was September of 2009. I did it on a layover, and I happened to, <laughs> that's really ironic, because we are sitting at the bar of the Holiday Inn in Memphis, Tennessee, and this is where I actually recorded my very first aviation podcast, Catholic Pilot, back in uh, 2009. And uh, this is where David is staying. Now, we are uh, my crew stays now a little bit, a uh, few blocks north at the uh, Sheraton. Um, but, you know, honestly, I re- really wish that we were back here at the Holiday Inn because uh, I've, I've stayed here probably tens or maybe even hundreds of nights in my 31-year uh, career at Acme Airlines. So uh, it's uh, it's kind of bittersweet, actually. But anyway, David, uh, who is uh, lives in the Boston area, uh, was looking at the schedule on the, uh, let's see, what do we call it, the um, APG community calendar, and noticed that I was going to be flying from Atlanta to Memphis this morning, uh, the 27th of January. And he said, I'm looking forward to, I had just happened to be looking at my Twitter feed, and I saw somebody tweet, I'm looking forward to riding on the Mad Dog from Atlanta to Memphis this morning. And I went, huh? Well, what's this about? And I, I immediately recognized your name, David, because, uh, as I mentioned, he's a uh, Coffee Fund cadre member, uh, classic method. And uh, I thought, that's cool. So I uh, communicated with him and said, uh, well, let's, uh, you know, is there a meetup planned? And I said, no, but my my schedule is wide open for today. We, we All I did this morning was fly from Atlanta to here, uh, left Atlanta around what? Was it about nine thirty ish? Got here about nine thirty ish with a uh, one hour time change, and uh, I said I'm I don't have anything on my schedule at all today, and why don't we plan on as you know if you have the if your schedule's open, uh, why don't we plan on meeting up for like a late lunch early dinner, and so that's what we did. So we have already engorged ourselves with amazing Memphis ribs at the uh, Blue City Cafe. And man, if you're if you're ever visiting Memphis and you really enjoy uh, barbecue, especially ribs, I think that the Blue City Cafe is the place to go. So we uh, had some great beer and uh, awesome ribs and some great seafood gumbo and uh, really good local IPAs. And uh, yeah, so we walked from over there to over here, much quieter here in the uh, yes. in the hotel uh, bar area. Hotel. We're not sitting directly underneath a television, um, and um, good in here. It's kind of quiet. Nice, good for a recording. 
Absolutely. And Dave knows a lot about recording. He's a studio musician. And so we have been having just the best time, at least I have, I uh, can't speak for him, just talking about so many things that we share uh, a passion for, you know, flying, obviously, uh, but also music. And um, I, you know, if you've listened to the show for any period of time, you know that when I was in high school, you know, music was a very, very big part of my life. And I was thinking that, you know, ideally I'd, I'd become a studio musician. Um, I uh, finally realized that uh, <laughs> to be a studio musician, you have to be like in the in the top half percent of the uh, like the ninety nine point five percentile of talented musicians, in my opinion. Anyway, uh, I just figured eh, it's not going to probably happen for me. Um, so I, I decided to go with the uh, the flying gig instead. But I'm always impressed with people like Dave, who is a what did you call a multi instrumentalist? He plays. I don't know. What do you play? Uh, piano, keyboards. Um, so all kinds of keyboard instruments, synthesizers, uh, the Hammond organ, um, uh, guitars, all guitars, acoustic, electric, bass, percussion, and I sing. I've heard him sing a, just a couple little snippets here and there tonight, and yeah, he has a great, he has a great voice, much better than mine. Um, Hammond, oh, I love the Hammond. So fl- playing an organ is so much different than playing a piano, isn't it? It really is. Um, you know, it's 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 a different beast altogether. And I grew up primarily a piano player, and I learned um, in the studio from guys who really knew how to play the the Hammond B three organ. It's the one with all the drawbars, the the two keyboard. Uh, layers. If you don't know what that is, you've you've heard it. It's on a gazillion records, and uh, it's used worldwide. But yeah, they started from the church. They said they were church organs, and then some people started pulling them out on recording studios, and it became like the sound. What do they call the thing that makes the uh, the classic Hammond sound? It's kind of like a Shelley, or what is it called? Uh, the Leslie speaker. Yeah, the, the it's a rotating speaker, so it has like that effect. Again, something that you've heard a thousand times, and you know your whole life, and all sorts of music, and. And no one knows really how it's created, but it's a speaker that revolves around. And, you know, it just uh, sometimes it goes slow, sometimes it goes fast. And uh, I don't think it quite goes as fast as the uh, fan and the engine, but it gets it gets up there. Probably not. Yeah, probably not uh, several thousand RPM. No. Uh, otherwise, it's probably self-destruct. But uh, anyway, uh, as you can tell, I'm really uh, excited to be talking uh, music with uh, Dave. He went to Berkeley School of Music, which is like a, a very... It's a world-renowned school, uh, and and Dana, uh, he's he's living up in the in the Boston area. He said he just missed uh, spending time watching that uh, that last sad Patriots game this uh, past season, uh, but he had, his schedule didn't allow him to come down uh, down to uh, Philly. Yeah, I was in New York. yeah, he was in New York at the time. He said anyway. So I, you guys are kindred souls, man. Uh, I know that you can uh, share some some good stories about living in Boston. He's from Newark, New Jersey, uh, originally, or that area. Um, so anyway, so uh, I'm going to stop hogging the microphone, let Dave talk a little bit more, and then we'll wrap it up so that we don't take up the entire show. All right. Yeah, it's been great hanging out with uh, Captain Jeff down here in Memphis. Um this was, yeah, definitely planned this for a while when I saw the calendar and I said that this worked out with my schedule that I was going to be getting away this week and uh, heading down to Florida, I decided to take a pretty severe detour and it's been well worth it because I grew up a complete av geek, you know, love aviation my whole life, 
Growing up in the suburbs of New Jersey, I lived on the approach path to Newark and always saw the planes flying in and used to go, used to travel a lot, even very, very young, did international travel. I told you my father was a college professor, so he dragged us on vacations all summer, you know, all the time. So did a lot of flying as a kid, and uh, I love it. And um, uh, as far as being a pilot, I'm not a pilot, though I've had a, a few hours, you know, uh, in 172 and a Diamond DH-20. You sound like a pilot to me. I, I would say that you're a student pilot. Student pilot, yes. But I, I haven't achieved the, uh, you know, I remember that. But it comes in. It comes, exactly. Anyway, it's been, it's been wonderful, and I'm really, I'm really glad I was able to bring you back to your roots, Jeff, being right here. And I just, you know, I, I stayed in Holiday Inn downtown. It was, looked like a good place to stay, and I did not realize I picked such a historic location uh, for you and uh, bring you back to uh, Catholic Pilot Guy number one right here. Anyway, no, it's been it's been great. I love Memphis. Uh, it's been too long since I've been here, so it's been a great day hanging out. Did the Sun Studios tour, um, which is where you know Elvis Presley, Johnny Cash, uh, Carl Perkins, Jerry Lee Lewis, all those guys recorded, and the great Sam Phillips who started Sun Records, um, Memphis Recording Services, and so a lot of great hit music history here, right here in Memphis. BB uh, King, um, so many, and Howlin' Wolf. Uh, it's it's amazing, uh, so much that, and stacks, you know, soul and everything. It's it's incredible. So to me, it's a great city uh, to be in with all this history and um, love flying, love flying on the Mad Dog with you. So it's been fun. Yeah, it was great. Um, wow, it's been a, a fantastic time uh, talking about history and music and flying and so much more. So thanks again, Dave, for uh, for riding with me to Atlanta. And uh, I'll, I'll remember this always. Thank you. May as well. Thank you so much. APG. Yeah. <laughs> and then we started singing the uh, song that's at the end of um, most of our shows. Uh, Airline by the guy. And then they kicked us out. They kicked us out of the bar. <laughs> <laughs> Get these guys out of here. We're doing that in the cockpit then. <laughs> no, we weren't singing that in the cockpit. And that's my jacket. Thank you very much. Oh, but you've lost weight. Uh, yeah. Not really. No. Uh, it was just the way it was bunched up, I think. Made it look like it was loose on me. Yes, um, nice, nice lunchbox. Um, what do you mean lunchbox? Well, there's some big there's a big bit of kit in the window. Oh, you that's the blue the blue thing? It's a is that the book? Yeah, it's a logbook. Uh, the the first officer I'm flying with uh, takes the thing and sticks it like into the where the wind, front center windshield comes together with the uh, glare shield, and it kind of just sticks. I've never seen anybody do that before. But that's what he does, and so uh, I didn't think about the fact that that was in that position when they were taking the photo. But anyway, whatever. Uh, we'll put the photos of uh, the. Dave and I in the cockpit and also uh, Dave in the um, Blue City Cafe bar uh, wearing a really nice uh, Save the Mad Dogs t-shirt. So He sounds like a great guy. He is. I'd love to meet him. Well, I hope that uh, he'll be at one of these big APG meetups at some point in the future. Yes. And uh, maybe uh, Dana can meet up with uh, him when Dana's up in the Boston area at some point. All right, uh, that is the little meetup that I had with uh, Dave. It was a lot, lot of fun. Um, 
ended the show or ended the show, ended the trip that I was on yesterday, Wednesday afternoon. And as I was walking through the concourse, I hear somebody say, Captain Jeff. And again, as I always do, I'm thinking, what did I do wrong? I must be in trouble. Uh, but uh, this guy walks up and one, one of these times that isn't going to be the case. You're like, Captain Jeff, we're going to yeah. need you to the chief office. Give uh, me your ID <laughs> and just follow us yes. uh, off the uh, off the premises. Um, but uh, met up with Rob Bozanka. Uh, is he still here with us in the um, in the chat room? He was yeah. Bozanko, excuse me, not Bozanka. And uh, he was in Greenville, South Carolina, and he was heading back to Calgary, uh, Alberta, Canada. Mm, and, so much uh, warmer down here. Yeah. Rob, why were you? I'm oh, just kidding. <laughs> I guess he had to go back to work. <laughs> Got to go home. Yeah. Understand. He works for a, uh, a, a very um, a performance related car manufacturer that has a big facility in the Greenville Spartanburg area. And uh, so he uh, uh, was, was uh, getting some education about various things with those cars i guess i can say it bmw mm-hmm. works for bmw Both either that or volkswagen in greenville right oh i didn't know that volkswagen had a plant there too okay. i think they do yeah okay cool um but uh anyway he was going to play the fbi card well i'm glad you didn't robert he is with us in the uh, chat room mm-hmm. and uh anyway uh just a quick conversation with rob as we walked uh, from the south end of the b concourse to the middle area of the thing and he uh, had a flight to catch and i had a train to catch so uh, it was very nice talking with you and meeting you uh, rob and uh, hopefully we'll be able to see you at a apg meetup in the future next time i fly into calgary although i don't i think the last time i flew into calgary was in the 90s when i was a 727 first officer so it's been a while but uh, I love Calgary. Beautiful. The Rocky Canadian Rocky Mountains and, and Alberta is just a beautiful, a beautiful province. People there are kind of rude, but other than that, they're, well, no, they're just Canadians. Yeah, they're Canadians. You know those rude Canadians. <laughs> <laughs> I have yet to meet one. Haven't you met Liz? Oh, you haven't met a, a nice one, I see. No, a rude one. I'm confused. Oh, you can't. You can only say that because she's just left her computer <laughs> Good. for a moment. Shh! Don't tell anybody. Tell her what I said. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, that is all that I can think of. Uh, I have a trip next week, Tuesday through Thursday, so I'll um, be able to watch the Super Bowl on Sunday night. It's kind of a big deal here in the U.S. And uh, then uh, I'll be able to recover Monday. Although I probably don't need any recovery time. And who's going to have a wardrobe malfunction this year? I don't know. Uh, who's the uh, J-Lo? Is Jennifer she... Lopez and Shakira. So Yeah, one well, of them. <laughs> one of them. Sure, I don't know who I'd like to have a wardrobe malfunction. Which one? I'm thinking Jennifer Lopez. Possibly. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, that's about it. So I think it might be a good time now for us to uh, head over to the coffee fund spot. And we'll knock that out and let me see if i can find it here it is right here johnny how much more coffee no thanks i love coffee i love tea i love the apg community coffee and tea and the java and me 
a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Where are you, Dave? Dave Levy should be here singing with me, playing your bass guitar or whatever. Anyway, a uh, couple different ways that you can be a financial supporter of the show. It's called the Coffee Fund Cadre or the Coffee Bar Club or whatever you want to call it. And a uh, couple different ways, Classic Fund and Patron, Patreon. Uh, we've had uh, three folks use the classic method, uh, recurring payments or recurring contributions from Vigner and Jason and Alistair. So thank you guys for that. And also, hey, you know, I mentioned last time, I think, uh, well, or it was a couple times ago, we didn't have any new patrons, but we do this time in abundance. Uh, we have two new producers, Bob Francis and Keith Waymont. And let's see, one, two, three, four new executive producers. Uh, James Mack, Casey Blasso, Baltimore Tony, excuse me, Baltimore Tommy, and Dave Gooch, of which we were just mentioning uh, he's going to meet up with, uh, with Nick in the UK. So thank you, everybody, for becoming patrons of the show. We do really appreciate it, and uh, hopefully you'll, you'll get as much out of it as you put into it. So we do appreciate that. And now it's time for us to move on to your feedback, which is one of the best things about the show. Captain, incoming message. And before Nick gets back, can I uh, correct myself from two seconds ago on a non-aviation point? Sure. That Volkswagen plant is in Chattanooga, not Greenville. Oh, okay. That's totally wrong. I knew it was somewhere in the south-ish. Yeah, I, I, I did re, uh, recall that there was one, in, but I thought, well, they I know I was like, a wait, places. as soon as I said it, I went, that's not right. Where is it? Well, I, like, think I can w- picture it. But. There is another big industry there, though, in uh, that area, and I think it probably <sighs> is because of BMW, and it's the... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the, the, the tire manufacturer, the, uh, the big guy with the, um, Michelin, uh, Michelin. Yeah. Are they there? I think there's a I big no Michelin idea, factory actually. there. Um, so, and I think okay. that those are the tires they put on the BMW. We're still talking cars. Yeah. Yeah. I had to correct my error. So sorry. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then we were talking about you. Mm. That's right. I had that bit. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oops. Oops. Um, how embarrassing. Yeah. How embarrassing. All right, let's start off with uh, item one in the feedback folder from Ray Davis uh, via Facebook. And he said, uh, possible crew and listener thoughts. And this involves something um, he gave a link to. Um, and I believe it was on Facebook. But here, let me see if I can find it. Yeah, on my Channel 9 News out of Sydney. Ah, okay. Were you on that uh, often? Often. Uh yeah, it's a it's a fairly well known uh, news channel out there, well respected. All right, well, let's see what they have to say about this. A trainee air traffic controller was at the helm when two Qantas planes loaded with passengers came a little too close for comfort. The Transport Safety Bureau now investigating the near miss at Sydney's domestic airport. It was around 6.30pm on August 5 last year. A trainee air traffic controller under supervision gave the green light 
for a Qantas Airbus A330 to take off from Sydney, bound for Melbourne. At the time, a Qantas Boeing 737 was coming into land from Brisbane. Air traffic control realised if the 737 continued to land, the planes would get too close, instructing the 737 at around 400 feet to go around and come in to land again. That put both aircraft turning to the right and their projected flight paths were converging. The 737 was instructed to turn further to the right as the A330 received a collision warning alert. The first officer at the controls of the A330 looked out the right cockpit window, seeing the 737 in close proximity above in a climbing turn and reduced the aircraft's angle back to reduce the turn towards the other plane. The A330 captain made a radio transmission saying that was very close. Air traffic control instructed the A330 to veer left. At the closest point, the planes came within 152 metres vertically and 796 metres laterally of each other. The Australian Transport Safety Bureau says its ongoing investigation will include air traffic control procedures, controller training and controller actions. And Qantas has responded saying our crew followed directions from air traffic control at all times, adding even if both aircraft stayed on the same flight paths, they were not in danger of colliding. The final report, including any failings, will be out later this year. Lizzie Pearl, Nine News. Okay, nine news. Okay, consider yourself fortunate that you did not watch the video that went along with that audio because the person that came up with all the <laughs> depictions of what was happening and being described in the audio uh, didn't get it quite right. <laughs> the uh, video, I don't know if you guys saw the video, shows the A330 taking off and then the 737 coming in the opposite direction from above and down, like directly opposite the A330 taking off. Um, and then it says, you know, when they say about 400 feet from the ground, they went around. Uh, they're still way up above the clouds. And <laughs> they have this little graphic that says 400 feet. <laughs> and I think, what? I'm, I'm not understanding this. Actually, what happened here is that, and the only mistake that I can see that may have been made by this trainee controller is the fact that he uh, cleared the a330 for takeoff probably too late or maybe should have had the 330 um you know delay the takeoff and stay off the runway to allow this other Qantas to come in the 737 to land so what happened is the a330 is taking off the 737 is coming in and it's the a330 taking off is not going to be off the runway in time so uh the a the 737 goes around at 400 feet and probably offsets a little bit to the right. Now we have two airplanes, both in the air. One is turning right, the 737, and the, I guess the departure procedure for the 330 was also kind of a right turn. And the 330 pilot looks out and sees the 737 up there, almost parallel, but they're turning away. Um, and they just gave some vectors to kind of get a little bit more separation. And that's about it. Honestly, not a very exciting or um, perilous kind of uh, kind of situation, in my opinion. I've seen this before, and that's why we as pilots have to be very cognizant of what is happening other than what is going on with our own flight. So that's why we listen to the radio and hear people cleared for takeoff, and then we think, okay, 
If there is not enough separation and I have to go around, what am I going to do with the path of my airplane? How am I going, how am I going to stay separated from the airplane that's just now lifting off from the runway? And uh, that's, you know, what professional pilots do. Uh, I've got a slightly different interpretation of their video. Have, okay. have you got some more information that I haven't had access to, Jeff? Because what do you mean? It looks like the guy getting airborne uh, is in direct opposition to the guy landing. <laughs> I'm saying because I'm looking at the I'm looking at the video here, and I'm saying that's why it's a good thing that we didn't play the video because the person that depicted all the things happening in the video is completely wrong. Oh, okay. So where? So oh, right. I'm confused. So, so if you if you if you listen to the audio without looking at that video, which will really throw you off um i mean if you look if you watch the video and listen to the audio at the same time you will understand that the the artist's depiction of what happened here is not anything close to what actually happened the 330 is clear for takeoff and the 737 is coming in on the same runway behind it oh, I would coming, they were in, coming in on opposing runways because the person who's doing the depiction doesn't understand that they're journalists operate in one direction at a time. Well, it, it's common, uh, actually, for, you know, in Australia, I know they do it in Sydney. If the wind's not uh, a problem, they will uh, depart aircraft a against the stream, as it were, because that's the quiet end of the runway. It sticks out of the water. And I assumed they were doing exactly the same here at this airport. I don't think so. I could be wrong. Okay. But, uh, yeah. yeah, I think that... Yeah, just just go through and, and, and just listen. Don't watch the video. <laughs> just listen to their description of what happened. And in my opinion, what happened here was that one airplane was taking off and in, in, a, in the same direction, they were coming in the same direction. One was taking off the same direction. The other one's coming in. There's not enough spacing. The 330 is still on the runway and it's got to go around and then offset. Um, the, the video made it look like, you know, he was up at 10,000 feet out over the water coming into the airport um, and had to make some kind of evasive action. Although they said that he was at 400 feet. So he would have had to have been very, very low out over the water. Um, anyway, again, I could okay. be wrong, but uh, I think that the, the artist's rendition of what occurred here doesn't quite match up in my mind to um, the audio. Anyway. But the one thing I was going to say, though, was the Qantas quote. Uh, I hope that it wasn't uh, accurate because they said, uh, Qantas follow ATC directions at all times. Well, you shouldn't, because if you get a resolution advisory from your uh, traffic collision avoidance system, your TCAS, uh, you uh, are obliged to ignore air traffic directions and do exactly what the TCAS say. So um, the only time that might not happen is uh, during a, a, a parallel approach but uh, certainly the teachings uh, this side of the uh, world are that uh, if air traffic are trying to resolve a conflict and you get a resolution advisory in the middle of that you obey the resolution or advisory regardless of what air traffic is saying well and that's true and that's the same as um, i think all around the world however in this situation there was no mention of any kind of a tcas advisory um, yeah. Oh, I thought they mentioned that they they had got something. They didn't use yeah, the right they, they didn't write the word. They didn't use those words, but there was no. a 
advisory issued to one of the aircraft. Because, yeah, yeah, the uh, the air traffic controllers gave them an advisory. Ah, okay. I I I took that as being a uh, an RA. No, I don't think there was. Any I did RA. also, but yeah, I okay. don't know. Well, if anyone out there in Australia knows more, perhaps they can solve. If there's actual um, air traffic uh, audio, that would be awesome. Yeah, if if somebody out there knows exactly what went on, I'm thinking. That we're just like on not on the same page on this thing, and I think that uh, there it was a it was a no, not a big deal. Um, yeah, might well have been. Might well have but been. who sent it in? Ray Davis. Ray, oh, yeah, typical. Thanks, Ray, for, for and doing he, that. He said it's an incident in Sydney. I thought it was some Brisbane or Melbourne. No, one no. of the aircraft. The aircraft coming into land was coming from Brisbane. Oh, so it actually happened at Sydney. It happened yeah. at Sydney. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, well, again, a badly titled picture on the video. God, no wonder I'm confused. <laughs> I'm telling you, I really was, think that, that video was, was a bunch clear. of crap, is what that video was. <laughs> Tell us how you really feel about it. It was well, not anything close to what I was hearing in the audio. If it is Sydney, then I I, I do remember there being um, departures uh, opposing arrivals at times for noise abatement. So that is a possibility. But anyway, Ray, make it clear to us, will you? <laughs> And another thing, again, if you don't if you don't watch the video and just listen, you'll you'll you never hear that they were coming at each other from opposite directions. All right. No, well, they do say that when they were turning, it's on converging paths, but converging because they, they could were still both be converging going in the because same they're direction. turning in the same direction. Yes. yes, they drew it turning opposite. I mean, both I to the right, but yeah, that just shows you how that mm -hmm. can just completely throw you off. Because when I was mm -hmm. first watching that, I'm thinking. Why, why is it showing the airplane up there way up in the air, the clouds below, and it's saying 400 feet above the ground? Something's not right here. And then I thought, let me listen to this again. And I'm thinking, that was completely wrong, whatever. Misinterpretation. The, misinterpretation of, of what data. happened. Sure again, it was meters, not feet. Uh, it was feet, I think. It they, said. they said <laughs> they gave uh, 400 feet above the ground. This, in meters, though. Yes. Yes, they did. But uh, the actual altitude that they gave at 400 feet uh, for the uh, go around. Anyway, Ray, uh, don't send us any more feedback if you don't mind. All right. And they've got they've got a picture a picture here of uh, the flight deck it says collision warning alert. Mm -hmm. Again, I advise you not to look at the pictures. Wow, man, use your ears, not your eyes. I can't do that. Sorry. This would like us to move on. Show, you keep talking at me. <laughs> I think we need to because. Oh, okay. Anyway, uh, two James. Hi, APG crew. First, uh, want to thank you for a wonderful show. I've been a listener from right back at episode 100. You make my commute to London that little bit easier. And I often find myself chuckling along with you guys sometimes with a few odd looks from fellow drivers. I always learn something new when listening. A bit about me, I'm a private pilot with around 150 hours flying experience from the UK. I also teach aviation subjects to air cadets. These are kids from ages 13 to 18, and I get a lot out of giving back after being a former cadet myself. This is what inspired me to catch the flying bug. This coming Friday, I'll be taking a group of cadets to RAF Benson in Oxfordshire to experience a flight in a RAF Grob tutor. Is that right? Grob or Grobe? Grob, uh, yeah. tutor uh, training aircraft. For many of them, this will be their first experience in a light aircraft. And for me, this is one of the joys of aviation, seeing young aviators take flight for the first time. Uh, 
Nick, you were um, a uh, cadet, right? Absolutely, but well before the Grub Tutor came in. Ah, all right. So I, I only know it as uh, something akin to a um, power glider sort of thing. It's some halfway between a light aircraft and a power glider, I think. I'd have to pull it up and take a look at it, but uh, <laughs> it's it's Same. small and power it's got a little clockwork engine on Yeah. Um, just don't watch the video. Uh, in other news, uh, I'm wondering if you have seen this article on the aviation. Hang on a minute. I, I used to do the exact the same thing. Uh, I used to uh, teach uh, um, ground subjects to air cadets. Uh, I did that for about seven years. Uh, when I not long after I started with, uh, with Virgin, so I, I know exactly what he's been doing, and uh, it can be great fun for sure. If you've got a bunch that are listening and are really keen, it can be extremely good fun. But uh, some aren't very keen. interesting all right um let's see another news i'm wondering if you have seen this article on the aviation herald this aircraft an a350 1000 was damaged after a hard landing in tel aviv which required the return flight to be canceled the aircraft is only a month old and was delivered in december to ba having been delayed due to being damaged in the paint shop at airbus not a lot of luck with this uh, a350 1000 that was obviously a friday afternoon airplane (laughs) Oh, is, that, is that like every Friday they do that? Oh, okay. Well, you know, it's like when you get a Friday afternoon car, Yeah, everyone wants to finish it and get home <laughs> for the weekend. They don't want to Did you make about... sure that yours was not a Friday afternoon car? Well, you tried to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my question to you all, how would you determine that the aircraft requires an inspection after a hard landing? I'm sure we the have... Wings fall off. <laughs> That's one clue. <laughs> all the tires have popped. Yep. Um, yep. Let's see. Uh, I'm sure we've all had a fair share of firm landings. Nah. <laughs> but at what point would you say, oops, I wonder if I've broken the aircraft? Thank you for your continued excellent coverage, keeping it 50%. And this is, I'm trying to scroll up here. Uh, Blue Skies, James Mack, who is one of our new patrons. So thank you, James. Um, um, don't most modern airplanes now have like sensors and they give you a, a report if, uh, you exceed certain parameters, Nick? Oh, for sure. Uh, and then the A340 or the A330, it would have started chuntering out a mile of paper as you were taxiing, uh, in, uh, which would have been titled report 15. It may be different on the A350. I don't know what report you get for a heavy landing, but it comes out with screeds of data, uh, you know, G data, uh, rates of descents, uh, you know, there are torsion, uh, sensors and there are more sensors on there, but you can shake a stick out and everyone will be going, Oh, here's my little reading, and here's my little reading. Uh, so and, quick, uh, quick, Bob, take that. Just throw it away. <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, okay. in the electronic version, we'll oh. already have whizzed off to main troll. So uh, they will be getting the same thing, and you'll be Damn going, it. oh, my Lord. Exactly right. Now, if you're lucky and it doesn't generate a Report 50. Now, we have one crew who did a heavy landing, but it was on their second touchdown. So the airplane went, oh, you've touched down, uh, so that's fine, uh, and that was a nice landing. Uh, it didn't record uh, or didn't generate a report 15 on the second touchdown because they bounced hmm. with this, everything all spoilers to that and crunched it down the second time, uh, which was really quite a severe uh, landing. 
and a report 15 wasn't generated. Wow. So they went, oh, phew, we got away with that. But that was only because the logic of the airplane said, well, you're already on the ground. You know, this can't be a heavy landing now. Mm-hmm. Um, but something tells me they did. to fly the airplane. <laughs> oh, really? I was going to say they actually yeah, did yeah, get away they with it. Yeah, they continued to fly the airplane. <laughs> and the engineers eventually went, what uh, the hell is this? You know, like three flights here. ago, this airplane just did the most horrendous landing. And uh, so it is incumbent on the flight crew to also be honest, come clean when you've whacked it in and write it in the logbook. Because even if the aircraft doesn't generate it, if you write heavy landing or rather firm landing, please check it or whatever you want to use, uh, then the engineers will go and have a look around and they will pull the data and they'll, they'll work it much better that than for it to be discovered a few flights down the road when, uh, you know, you should really put your hand up because you know what's going to happen then. You're going to be really in the poo. Instead of just being in the poo, now you're really in the right, poo. So, right. Yeah, you don't want that. So there's no way to get get away from it. You just have to nope. fess up and no, you yeah. should anyway because yeah, of course. you know, yeah. uh, you, you don't. <laughs> and the next bloke, an airplane with its one wingtip nine inches lower than the other, uh, you know, that's not normal. <laughs> it might be your, maybe it is on my mad dog. <laughs> just look at the elevators on that thing. I mean, they've all been over the place. all over the place. Yeah, you know? they're all over the place. They're so if I see that around. on the wing, I just go, "Oh, that's normal." <laughs> yeah. So now you can't get away with anything in modern airplanes. Ah. All right. Well, good stuff. Um, anything else to add before we move on to uh, item three? No, it's not the first three fifty heavy landing I've heard. Um, mm. oh, I think there I'm was one other. That- the, yeah, with a thousand, right? The A three fifty one thousand. Yeah, there must well, be I mean, something different a... about the way that airplane handles or whatever that uh, it's kind of harder to land. Well, possibly it's different uh, characteristics. The, yeah, perhaps. the three forty six hundred when it came into service, um, the flight controls did react slightly differently to the other version of the three forty three forty three hundred, which was actually a hundred tons lighter. Uh, and uh, it took some time for Airbus to acknowledge the fact, and they reconfigured the flight laws so that it behaved. They behaved better, uh, and after that, we flew the airplane much uh, smoother uh, in certain regimes of flight. Um, and it might be that it might be just slight teething problems in the, need a bit of tinkering in the flight laws. But uh, I, yeah, and I, of course, it's new to service for everybody, so everyone's still getting the hang of it. Yeah. Well, hopefully they'll get it all worked out and yeah. learn how to land it without land trying it. it on. <laughs> <laughs> Just press the auto land button. There you go. And then you can at least blame it on that. That's exactly that's probably that actually a good idea. I can watch the what the airplane does and go, oh, okay, that's how you do it. <laughs> you know, I heard the other day that on average, uh, uh, a modern airline pilot flies the airplane for seven minutes of flight. That's so depressing. Seven minutes. And I've, not surprising. I've flown with those guys. <laughs> <laughs> and that's on average. So some yeah. guys are flying like it for like half an and hour half. and other guys are yeah. flying for 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah. There was, at my company, we had a breakdown of uh, the, the various fleets and what the average um, oh, time flying. And interestingly, you would think that, um, well, it, it's kind of obvious that, or you'd and it's obvious to me, an airplane such as the one I fly would be one of the ones that uh, is is flown, hand flown more. Well, yeah. Um, and but 
I think I don't think we were at the top of the list. I think it was something like the the triple seven or the seven six. And I'm thinking That's the most hand flown. Yeah. And I'm thinking, well, that's odd. And Did they then, break it down? They just broke it down by fleet type. They didn't break it down by, um, I don't know if they could figure out based on who's flying it, seniority or, or I think experience. So I think you can kind of in, interpolate and mm-hmm. say, wait a minute, the guys and gals that are flying the 777 are the old school people. They're yep. the senior people, the older people, yep. and they're going to be more likely to fly the airplane. They're um, the people that can't work out what all the buttons. They don't know how to work the autopilot, so they get stuck. It has an autopilot. I have no idea how to use it. <laughs> and finally, you just look over your your young first officer and say, "Would you like do whatever you need to do so I can turn the autopilot yeah. on?" Um, but uh, th- I think that really does have a lot to do with you know. At first, I'm thinking, "Well, I can't be right." And then, "Oh, okay." Now that I'm thinking about it, it seems that uh, the the type of and I think that's what you're kind of getting at, uh, Steph. Um, you know, cause they, they didn't break it down to, you know, the age of the person or how much or experience like they had. Senior, seniority on the different right. uh, aircraft types. Yeah. yeah. So of course, uh, it wasn't a surprise that, uh, the Airbus fleet, because it's such, uh, such a much more integrated auto flight kind of operation, auto flight fly by wire and everything else is designed to really not be hand flown that much. So it wasn't a surprise to see that they were the, the lowest numbers, but I was still surprised though, at how many. Uh, how low those numbers were, um, as you mentioned, Nick, you know, set an average of seven minutes. And I'm thinking that's kind of sad, but oh, well, I know that Nick yep. was one of those that, uh, you know, tended, and I'm sure that you probably were not the rule, but more the exception to hand fly the airplane a little bit more than most people that you flew with. Yeah. I always just get trifle nervous of, um, and wonder about guys who got it airborne and as the gear was traveling, the autopilot was going in. And I was thinking, really? You, you know, why are you doing that? You know, this is a chance to fly it close right. to the ground. You know, it's fun, et cetera. Yeah. You know, they, they, I, I used to think to myself, well, I wonder how confident they are of their flying skills. Mm-hmm. That's something you always wonder about. I mean, uh, the my only experience uh, is on the jump seat of the Airbuses and only the narrow buses, narrow body um, Airbuses 320. 321. And that's exactly my experience shortly, maybe not while the gear was actually still coming up, but not long after that, uh, the autopilot was on and it stayed on the entire flight until just barely, you know, touchdown. <laughs> it's like, yeah. okay. Yeah. Well, I that's the ever... other thing I used to hate taking it out at minimums. I'm mm-hmm. thinking, well, you've now got 200 feet to, to work it feel out. the wind. Yeah, work out. Yeah. Today. yeah yep. exactly. It's gonna oh, be a real smooth landing, Nick. <laughs> there are so much. There are so many things that uh, the youngsters can learn from us, right? Oh yeah, I'm sure they're all listening. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What did what, you say, uh, Steph? Before we started uh, recording, uh, boomer. Oh yeah. Okay, boomer. Okay, boomer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, speaking of boomers, uh, I think it's uh, time now for the best part of our show, which everyone knows here means that it's time for the old pilot's plane tale. And this one is RAF Forum Four Fourteen Volume Six. The old pilot's plane tales. RAF Form 414, Volume 6. 
As you may recall, I left you, lovely listener, in Cyprus, having enjoyed a magical night in a local taverna and with a slightly sore head, about to commence flying the Phantom on our annual armament practice camp. However, before I could be let loose with a fully armed gun pod, there was the usual local area familiarization flight to accomplish. Tony, who had been assigned as my navigator from the day I arrived on the squadron, climbed into the back seat and we set off to look around Cyprus. It was early in the morning, so the first thing to do was to wake up the Russians in their alligator. I have mentioned the strategic importance of Cyprus to NATO as a base very close to the countries of the Middle East. RF Akrotiri was only 150 miles from Beirut, and a little further south, but not much further, was Haifa, Tel Aviv, and the Gaza Strip. As a result, there were agencies and missions that I won't mention that operated from the base as well as the visiting RAF squadrons. Monitoring activity on the base was therefore something that the Soviets took an interest in, and we, as a result, took an interest in them. Semi-permanently moored off a buoy, buoy to my American cousins, about 20 miles out to sea, was a listening vessel to monitor radio and other transmissions from the base. The Soviets used to change it every few months, sometimes an alligator, sometimes a polnochny, or something similar. Our wake-up calls weren't officially sanctioned, but we all played regular visits to make sure that the Russian crew were kept entertained. It must have been pretty boring out there, month after month sitting in the heat, watching the tape recorders capture our inane radio chit-chat. We felt sorry for them, and thought that a low pass or two in full reheat might brighten up their dull existence. Then there was a bit of buzzing around the coast, taking a look at the beaches, trying not to get too close to the Princess Mary's Hospital, which was on a tiny peninsula near the airfield. It was a bit of a trick, getting close enough to impress the nurses, who were also quartered near our own accommodation on the base, without upsetting the powers that be, and more importantly, the senior matrons, who looked down on us through bifocals, and could make the bachelors' lives hell by depriving them of female company. Then it was a quick practice diversion to Larnica, a civil airport to the east, for, at their request, a low approach and overshoot in full blower, and a minor snotting of the tower. Suitably familiarised, it was down to work with the quip, or qualified weapon instructor pilot, as he was more formally known, in the back seat as I got my first look at the flag. The first thing I noticed was that all the aircraft now sported a length of nylon string attached to the bottom of the front windshield. Once airborne, we were off to find the Canberra. Eventually, we located him, stooging around in the range, and got ourselves behind. We're doing about 400 knots, and he a mere 180, so we had quite a bit of closure. At around a mile, we tell him to commence, and he would begin a gentle left turn. We'd start a descent and begin to position ourselves for the firing run. With the radar locked to the banner, 
I'd used my little pinky to move a switch to stiffen the gun sight and keep it in view. I wasn't going to let it do its own thing until a little bit later. We continued to close, a little in lag of the camera, so that the angles didn't build up too much, and with the ranges being called off by the quip, the flag started getting closer. It was 6 foot by 30 foot, about 2 metres by 10 metres, so not huge. At the appropriate range, I'd ease the pipper up onto the flag and start tracking the rear. I was trying to make the adjustments small and smooth and not pedal the big phantom around. This was all about accuracy. The countdown cadence from the back seat continued, and the Hessian banner grew until he called, Release! I let the gun sight loose, and it started to track up the flag. Ready, fire, break! The fire came up 400 yards, about 370 metres, and with a couple of hundred knots of closure, the brake call, a hundred yards closer, came quickly. The brake was a rolling pull, using both rudder and aileron to roll over the top of the flag, followed by a pitch up and a reversal to position for the next pass. I got to pull the trigger, but the gun wasn't loaded. This was, after all, a safety checkout for me to see if I was okay to continue to the next stage. After 15 minutes, the next victim had turned up, so we departed, but not home. Flying hours are never wasted, and the quit was going to give me my annual duel check, so it was time to prove that I could still fly the beast. A lot sweatier, and I'm back on the ground and in the little cine room for the debrief. The film from the Telford gun camera has already been developed, and now I'm being subjected to an ultra-slow-motion replay of each pass of the flag. Now the bit of string on the windshield becomes obvious. I couldn't really see it from the cockpit, but it shows up clearly in the film, and shows if I'm trying to yaw the aircraft to keep the pipper on the flag. Apparently, all is well, and although my technique is far from ideal, I'm supposed to be safe to fly with my navigator next time. So the next day, Tony climbs into the back seat, and off we trot. The pattern is becoming familiar now, and the cadence of the calls becoming ingrained. It's like a weird metronome, as Tony calls off the ranges, and I interject with the commence call, followed by in dry. Clear dry comes the clearance from the camera pilot, who also acts as the range safety officer, and the calls from the back seat recommence. I match them with my position so that when we get to the firing range, I'm about 18 degrees off the banner, a safe angle to ensure that my shells keep well clear of the toe. I'm pulling the trigger, but the magical sound of the Vulcan cannon is still quiet. I'm just shooting photons through the gun sight camera, which will subsequently be dissected by the Qwise. It gets a bit like flying holding patterns, and the only exciting bit is the dash back to the airfield for a hundred foot run and break into the circuit. Alpha dispersal isn't far from the threshold, and the troops sweating away working on the jets always get a kick out of a low break. In the cramped cine room, the QIs produce weird gizmos like curved rulers, which they lay up against the screen to measure the range of the banner and the angle off, 
they compare the actual bore sight point of the gun with the angle off and the range to predict where the rounds would have gone and give a little tut-tut interspersed with an occasional hmm of approval. Couple of these dry trips and at last I'm cleared to go live. Now I'm a bit nervous. Never done this before. Fired the gun, that is. Fired anything on the Phantom, come to that. When I sign for the aircraft, there's a section reminding me that I have a live gun. A number of rounds and the colour. The colour is important. I won't be the only one to shoot on the flag, so to separate each pilot's score, the tips of the rounds are dipped in a special paint. It's gloopy stuff that doesn't want to dry properly, so that, should it go through the Hessian flag, it'll leave a telltale smear of colour. Everyone wants red. It marks well. Green and blue are OK, but nobody likes purple. It's easy to mistake purple for a faint red or blue. I get purple. Here I go, then. I'm starting the first of six attempts to get two scores over 15%. Or, well, to be truthful, I've no idea what would happen, but I know the boss wouldn't be pleased. The Canberra taxis past and lines up on the runway. The banner party are waiting with the flag laid out on the tarback and the cable looped down the runway and then back to where the Canberra lies. While he waits, some guy in shorts climbs underneath his aircraft and clips the cable into the release mechanism. A thumbs up and the aged bomber starts to roll. When the 900-foot cable pulls taut, the banner shoots off down the runway, flapping behind the spreader bar, which supports the flag, and has little wheels at each end to run on. As they get airborne, the banner follows and then twists to fly upright, positioned by a weight in one end of the spreader bar. We're second on the flag, so we watch the first phantom get airborne and then follow him off, entering the range well above the tow height and hold. If the aircraft below us goes US, we must be ready to step in. I dip my wing to watch him. It seems ages as the F-4 closes on the banner, and then it twists away at the last moment. I'm waiting for something to happen, but the next time I see it, a long streak of grey smoke from below his aircraft as he gives the banner a good squirt of 20mm. Then... From the quiet of the air above, it's my turn, and I'm cleared to join. I drop like a stone and pull up behind the camera. From the back seat, Tony's calm voice is giving me the calls, and I'm trying to follow the cues, but I'm behind the aircraft and slow to get into position. When he calls fire, I throw the pass away, not even close to a decent firing picture. The next is the same, and the next... I'm starting to get stage fright, and then there's a click as Tony turns his mic on and gently tells me, Look, Nick, on the next one, so long as it's safe, just fire. Get it out of your system. I follow his advice, and as he calls release, the Pippa starts to move forward. Ready? Fire. I squeeze the trigger, and then a howl grows from beneath the phantom, a kind of low, ghostly moan growing in pitch and volume as the gun speeds up to full firing rate, and then I'm hearing, Break! I'm mesmerized, but his shout wakes me up, and I heave up and over the flag and watch it disappear below the right wing.
We get some more firing passes in. I don't feel particularly comfortable, but it's too late now. We break into the circuit and taxi back with our canopies open, feeling the warm air dry the sweat from our flying suits. After an interminable wait, everyone has fired and the camera returns to drop the banner. It tumbles from his aircraft like a wounded bird and hits the dirt beside the runway. Heaved into the back of a Land Rover, it's soon being carried into the courtyard at the detachment headquarters and laid out. I'm up in the cine room and there is plenty of tutting going on. Inconsistent angle off, poor line and too much deflection, which they hate. Too much back pressure as you fire and you over-deflect, your rounds going ahead of the target. This upsets the camera crew and risks cutting the cable. Should this happen, the flag more or less stops in mid-air and with over 200 knots of closure, there's a real risk of hitting it. What's more, the guys before will have lost their score as the banner spirals into the sparkling Mediterranean below, never to be seen again. Finally, it's time to grab a Coke and get outside to see the flag. It's neatly laid out and there's already a crowd there checking out the hits. The banner's a thin rectangle edged in black with a large black spot in the middle. The tail is all ratty from being battered by the airflow and there are marks and grooves on the heavy metal spreader bar. Not good, this is where ricochets come from. The QI gets his clipboard and starts marking occasionally getting onto his knees to examine a hole or tear to see if it scores one or two. I'm staring. I can't see any purple at all. But then Tony rests his hand on my shoulder and points a few out. Well done, mate. At least you hit it. My score is finally added up and calculated into a percentage of the rounds fired. 13.6%. Not good, not bad. I'm not a qualifying shoe, but as Tony tells me, okay for a first go. We head back to Block 101, where the fridge is full of beer, and stripping down to shorts, we flop out on ratty old sofas with a cold keo opened on the fire bell. The rim of the hand-cranked fire bell that adorns every block makes a perfect bottle opener, and it accompanies every fresh beer with a musical ding, that I can still hear in my mind. I'm gloomy. I have to fly another dry sortie to bring back better results before I can go live again. A bit glum, but determined to do better. The next day I'm airborne again, and there are a few smiles from the QIs. I go straight up again with a full gun. I've got red this time. An hour later and I'm grinning, as I can see my colour on the banner, even as it's being unloaded. Spread out and the scoring begins. Tony is goading the QI to give a long streak a double hit, but it doesn't matter. 31.8% I'm in the groove. The next day it's a 30.8 and I'm qualified. The day after a 45% and the boss gives me a slap on the back. Tony's grinning and the beer flows. Ka-ching, ka-ching, goes the fire bell. Academic shooting is over. Now we do more operational stuff. First a toe pattern like before, but with a strict time limit. 6.7%. And then into the full operational shoots. 
Now we meet the Canberra head-on, and as we pass it starts a continuous turn for 720 degrees and then calls stop, stop, stop. What we have to do is manoeuvre around him to get into a firing position. We can shoot until the gun is empty, but no attacking from below, no breaking minimum range or angle off. The camera passes and I heave upwards into a high yo-yo and then drop back down, sliding to the outside of his turn to make some distance, and then try to get into a firing position. It's taken a while and the angle off is high, but I give it a long burst, 14 hits. The next day my dander's up, but it's only three hits, and the next time, one. Going downhill fast, but after that it's 26 hits and then 14 again. I think I've got the hang of it. Before I know it, Tony and I are off the working shift, so that the other half of the squadron can have a go. For us, it's two weeks to relax in the sun. We grab wheels and head up to rustic little fishing villages like Pissuri or Paphos to eat fresh grilled fish and octopus from tavernas on the beach. Now a tourist mecca, crowded and noisy, but then quiet and traditional. Another day might see us down on Ladies Mile, a long beach, enjoying the delights of the many activity clubs that prospered there on the RAF base water skiing, sailing, fishing, or just enjoying a beer on the beach. Then it's up into the mountains to visit the Stavaruni Monastery or a night of culture in the Curium, ancient Greco-Reek amphitheatre, watching plays or listening to music while we sit on the stone steps, drinking chilled pink lady and scoffing rations we pinch from the mess. The golden sun would set in front of us, reflecting off the sea, and we could hear the gentle noise of waves on the beach a hundred feet below the cliffs this ancient city was built on. There are drunken parties for the nurses and cocktail parties for the wheels, but all too soon it comes to an end, and still too junior to get to fly an aircraft home, I'm back into the Herc for the long drone to Scotland. As soon as my feet hit the Scottish soil, I'm told to prepare Section 6 of my Form 414 for my very first annual assessment. Obeying Para 3 on presentation of summaries, I craft it in red ink. I total the hours flown for the year, 234, and under assessment of ability, my boss writes, average, with potential, remarking, a good first year. I was as pleased as punch. What a jerk that guy is, huh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I still meet him, you know. Uh, we get together. He, he's there most years at the uh, thinly disguised, the Phantom uh, thinly disguised. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, the yeah. one that I... I can't talk about that. Yeah. That happens every year in the uh, Lawn, Lord Moon pub uh, on the Mull in uh, London, uh, and um, he's a fine chap. But it was my first tour and my first year, so I didn't expect. Right, I was very pleased to be <clears throat> average. Thank you very much. Even if you were the like the best <laughs> ever, I'm sure that he probably wouldn't have <laughs> said Big that. Hill, yeah, <laughs> jumped up little snot. <laughs> I'm yeah, sorry, I'm an average. You were saying something. 
Oh, I said, and he noted his his potential for future improvements. So that's yeah. always good. You've got to start somewhere. Exactly. Right. But I, I have to say, I, I look back on those uh, Cypriot detachments with such fondness. And, of course, never could I go back there and even come close to reliving it because Cyprus has turned into, you know, 18 to 30s, uh, you know, just massive hotels. Uh, the the towns which were little have now just got lines of hotels all the way down the coast. Uh, and all those little tavernas will have been taken over by nightclubs and things. So, you know, I was very lucky to have been there at the time when it was such a special little island. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds very nice. Well, it was very nice. I didn't realize quite how nice, but there yeah. you go. Well, isn't that the case with so many things in life? That's very true. All right. Oh, this is dis- disappointing, sad, sad, disappointing news to all of us here at the APG. Oh, I can't take my hamster on the airplane. Anymore. Yeah. Well, Jonathan and Sean sent uh, in this. Uh, yeah. Just saw the uh, U- U.S. Department of Transportation is proposing a ban on emotional support animals in the cabins of U.S. airplanes. Woo-hoo. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, oh. <laughs> dang it. They just opened a 60-day what, comment. Snakes? Peacocks? No, horses? don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, they just opened a 60-day comment period on a proposal to limit animals in the cabin to only oh, trained. Uh, yep. I, I, I've left my comment. Oh, you did? Good. Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, I think yeah. we all should. I, I, I have nothing to do with this whatsoever, being an Englishman, yeah. but I was straight on that. Well, good. Uh, you know when you might take a domestic flight here. It might yeah. happen. Good point. It Thank you very you. much. Yeah, so uh, the, uh, the limit animals in the cabin to only trained service animals and only dogs. I'm glad to see the DOT is trying to regulate a situation that has become a complete mess. I'm pretty sure the crew agrees. Yeah, I think we all do. But do any of you think there will be unintended consequences? I've included a link where people can comment on the proposed regulations. Perhaps it can be included. ITSN in the show notes. Yes. Uh, uh, I guess only for the people who have maybe spent quite a bit of money on their trained miniature horses, which are mm. <laughs> I can't, pigs. can't imagine pigs. a lot of people fall in that category. Oh, well, that's the only unintended consequence I can. Yeah. I like uh, Sean. Uh, that The first one was um, Jonathan in Minneapolis. And then Sean says, about damn time. <laughs> Although, to be honest, I never thought we'd see this level of sanity return to the skies. Yeah. I well, agree. wait, there's still a 60-day comment period. They yeah, still I know. change their mind, take it back. Yeah, and let's I not thought, forget that the majority of these people who do it are great supporters of it. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. because of course they can uh, travel with their pets whenever they want, cost them no money, blah mm-hmm. blah blah. Yeah, I'm sure that they'll still continue to try to. If if this rule is enacted, they'll still try to figure out how to how to break the or bend the rules. Become trained service animals, obviously. Yeah, you know we don't have a problem with actual trained service animals, right? Only yeah. ones that you yeah. slap a something you bought from Amazon.com on their backs and, you know, to make us believe that they are really service animals and they're not. My dogs could never be confused for being trained. <laughs> uh, service well, animals. you'd be surprised. I think that uh, yours would behave better than some that I've seen. Well, that's not so good. We'll uh, put this in the show notes, ITSN, as uh, uh, Jonathan said, uh, so that you can do as uh, Captain Nick did, and it's a, a link to 
regulations.gov, and I'm not going to spit out the actual URL because it's a bunch of letters and numbers and stuff. So it'll be there for you to make your comment and hope that uh, this thing will pass. All right. Um, Fabian, is Fabian still with us in the chat room? I think he's been there for most of the show. Well, you know, we talked about the Q400, um, uh, the LOT Q400 um, story about the um, the landing gear. And the, uh, this is the one about the wheelbarrowing, I think, wasn't it? Yes. Okay. And uh, so he says, hi, Liz, Jeff, and crew attached. You can find my feedback regarding the Q400 LOT lot story. Not sure if it needs adding at the end, but icing speeds for the Q400 for approach are used with temperature below 10 degrees C and visible moisture below acceleration altitude. Always happy landings, Fabian. And so let's hear his recording. Did someone say my name? Oh, hi, Jeff and crew. Uh, Q400 driver Fabian from Germany here. Uh, I fly the Q400 for Acme Stadt. And in episode 49, we were talking about the lot accident in 2018 where the Q400 uh, touched down and landed with the nose gear not extended. And investigations found out um, the aircraft had landed nose wheel first before. And this was a contributing factor. And you were asking about usual pitch attitudes on the aircraft. So for the flare phase of the aircraft, um, the aircraft is prone to tail strikes. So for us, it's company procedure to call a pitch, um, yeah, to give pitch call outs during the flare phase, so um, 50 feet and below. Um, normal pitch call outs would be four, uh, five and six degrees, while um, those come from the pilot monitoring. While at six degrees, the pilot flying should answer with correcting and, um, well, if the pilot monitoring doesn't see a correcting action, um, he should initiate the go around because at six degrees, there's a chance if you hit the runway too hard, you might have a tail strike. But if the pitch increases further, the probability goes up. And I think at the latest at 7.5 degrees, you will have a tail strike no matter how smooth you touch down. So that's one of the pitch factors. Um, but during the approach phase, um, usually um, we can uh, approach with either flaps 10, 15 or 35. And with normal speeds for flaps 10, that would be a pitch during approach between 2 or 3 degrees. For, pitch 15, uh, for flaps 15, it would be approximately 1 to 3 degrees pitch. And for flaps 35, the pitch would be somewhere between minus 1 and uh, 1 degrees. Um, the problem comes in when we have to approach with icing speeds. For icing speeds, we add um, 15 knots at flaps 35 and 20 knots for the other approach flap settings. This leads, of course, to an um, even lower um, approach or approach pitch. For 10 degrees, it would be just slightly above zero. For 15 degrees, it would uh, be, some be tw- between somewhere between minus one and one degree. And for flaps 35, the approach with icing speeds, approach pitch with icing speeds would be between minus three degrees and minus one degree. So, um, and since the accident happened in Poland, I would guess, uh, and in Poland entering winter time, um, I would guess the 
approach most of the approaches were flown with icing speeds so high probability of the pitch being below zero but still that shouldn't lead to an um to a nose gear first landing um in any case for us it's not no procedures if we fly icing speeds to call out negative pitches too and if there was a pitch below mine uh, below one degree um at 10 feet uh, we would probably initiate a go around um, just yeah to be sure to not hit a nose wheel first um, I don't know why the lot uh, colleagues uh, still had as many nose gear landings as they did but that's all I can tell you about the um, approach and pitch angles on the Q400 as always, thanks for doing a great show and happy landings. Thanks, Fabian. Good stuff. I knew we had at least one expert uh, that has is flying the Q400. And uh, I believe it was something that we were discussing behind the scenes uh, and not on the show, but the Q400, the Q stands for quiet. And I did not know that. And apparently... Uh, the Q400 is um, fitted with speakers inside the cabin that it's like active noise cancellation. And if they're tweaked properly by qualified engineers, uh, they uh, kind of diminish the amount of sound that you get from the outside, you know, wind noise and uh, propeller engine noise, etc. And I did not know that the Q in Q400 stood for quiet. Did you? No, I thought it was that there was another 399 airplanes ahead of them because they were so slow. Because they were in a queue. Yeah. Gotcha. Ba-doom, bam. I wish I had my I, laugh I tracks. I did not know it. that. Okay. Um, so what did you think? That, that makes sense, a lot of sense, Fabian, uh, regarding the, uh, the pitch angle, and especially if you're maintaining those higher speeds for icing conditions and you happen to have chosen the flaps 35 setting. Uh, yeah, you're going to definitely be kind of like an RJ200 coming in for approach, and uh, it definitely is a, uh, a a good practice, I guess, for the pilot uh, monitoring to call out negative pitch when you're getting close to the ground so you don't get the uh, the old wheelbarrow effect thing. But but a little unusual in that it, you can get a very flat attitude, uh, yet they're very worried about tail strikes as well. So. Yeah. That, that, you know, that you can enough to be a real pilot to uh, do a good job with one of those. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, I've heard Fabian that it's doing a little on the tricky side. Oh. <laughs> but joking, Fabian. Good man. Keep going. Yeah. No, I've heard it's it's definitely tricky to master a, a very smooth landing on the Q400 from various people. I, I would imagine it is, based mm -hmm. on what he just told us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. That's always uh, that's one of the great things about doing the show is we have so many people out there that listen who have various experience levels with uh, various aircraft and such, and it's neat to get the feedback. So thanks for taking the time out, Fabian, for that. And uh, Nick, why don't you take this one here, um, an extraordinary flying story, and I'm not going to try to pronounce his last oh, name. Oh, Mike Abunela. Yeah. Yeah, he's a lovely bloke. Yeah, I he probably doesn't know me or wouldn't remember my name, but I know him because I bumped into him a few times, even though he was on the Boeing fleet and uh, I was on the Airbus fleet. Because, Do you guys uh, actually talk to each other? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, shared a, shared a beer or two, I'm sure. Um, the fact is that uh, when uh, Mike, who uh, flew for Virgin Atlantic, um, when he arrived in London Gatwick on Saturday morning, and this is obviously just a few days ago, uh, January 20th, um, he'd been flying, and this is uh, on, from a blog that uh, Virgin Atlantic put out. Uh, he's been flying our Boeing 707s for over 30 years and holds the coveted number one position in the pilot seniority list. Um, we joined Mike on his last trip to Orlando, and why you'd choose to go to Orlando on your last trip, I'm not sure, but he obviously liked the place and discovered more of his incredible story. It's along the house the of the mouse, Nick. Uh, right, okay. That's If you Come like on. mice, that's the heist of the mice. Um, okay. How he was smuggled out of Iraq in the back of a lorry before returning to the country 22 years later as commander of a historic flight, and now he's probably flown more hours on the 747 than anyone else in history. We don't know that for sure, but at the moment, it's, uh, it's a, an hour's level that um, you know is open there for anyone to go, well, I've done more, but we don't think so. It's quite a tale with lots of twists. Uh, anyway, the, the short story is Mike has finally finished his flying career. Uh, he flew... Uh, um, his last aircraft, uh, the uh, Boeing 747-400 into uh, Gatwick. Um, he'd been born in Baghdad in 55, uh, and um, from a young boy, always interested in flying, he became a pilot in the Iraqi Air Force. Um, but um, his Air Force ambitions were thwarted. Uh, his parents were pacifists, and they didn't want his children or their children to have military career, so he became an airline pilot. Uh, and uh, he flew for uh, Iraqi Airways, uh, 727s, and then on to 747s. Um, and, uh, of course, then he had uh, uh, he was doing his training in Oxford. He had a worrying message from his family, family telling him not to return. Saddam Hussein had started... Uh, one of the notorious purges that occurred, and uh, Mike's brothers and five cousins had already been arrested. Uh, he, Mike never saw his brother again, very sadly. Um, he uh, made the decision to return, to be with his family and resume his career, but uh, after just one flight as punishment, he was grounded and uh, ended up shuffling papers for a railway company. Um, finally, he escaped the country, and uh, coming to Kuwait, um, he uh, managed to uh, get a job um, with a friend, uh, and he then um, was offered to fly as a pilot for Kuwait Airways. Uh, he then moved uh, to the UK and got his license on the 747. Um, Briefly flew for Air Lanka and then eventually started this brand new airline in the UK called Virgin Atlantic um, and started flying uh, GVMIA, which was our first 747, which I think was a, a 100 or a 200, one of the really old ones. Um, and uh, he flew with us, uh, you know, forevermore until he's finally retired uh, at the age of 65. So, you know, a marvelous bloke with a fantastic uh, a history behind him. Uh, he, um, you know, he's got a wealth of experience and an enormous number of hours. I'm just trying to whiz through to see what the 
hours he has on the 747. Can anyone find that? Because it's a I'm long looking, article. Looking, looking. I don't, do they have that in there? Scanning. I don't think I see it. I did not see a number value that would. Over 30 okay. years at Virgin Atlantic. Yeah. Uh, over 24,500 hours on the aircraft oh, type. there you go. On the 747. It says, although we can't prove it. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, we can't prove he's the most experienced, but that's his yes. hours. So, if wow. anyone's got more, let us know. But at the moment, that's the that's the most experienced seven forty seven pilot going. Um, he says uh, on his final PA, uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to London Gatwick. As you heard earlier, after thirty one years of flying for Virgin and forty six years of flying, it's time to say goodbye. That was my last landing and my last flight with Virgin Atlantic. I'm retiring at the age of 65. It was my pleasure to serve my beloved Virgin Atlantic and, of course, the many customers that I've flown over the years. So for one last time, I'd like to thank you for flying Virgin Atlantic and wish you all the very best. Thank you. It's a great story. Great story. Mm -hmm. He overcame quite a bit. Oh, yes. I I skimmed this uh, story. There's an awful lot more to it, which I'm sure Jeff can put in the show. ITSN. Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. Thanks for reading it. Um, All right. Uh, You know, we get help from our community members, such as Fabian answering the question that we had regarding the uh, uh, landing approach on the Q400. And sometimes we actually get to help our community members. So it goes the other way. And in this case, I think that it's going to be a, something that maybe fellow community members might be able to help Philip with. And he says, Dear APG crew and listeners, hope you're all well. Philip from Switzerland checking in. I recently got a job as a gate ag- a gate check-in agent at Zurich Airport, which I should be starting in April, and which I'm very excited about. However, I also applied for a job as an operations controller assistant at another airline and am now invited to an interview, which will take place in mid-February. The interview is two hours long, which leads me to believe that there will be some sort of assessment and possible, possibly some tasks to solve. Now, I need some help from the APG community. I already posted on Slack for advice, but I have no idea what to expect from this interview, and was wondering if there are any community members who work in operations and have an idea what specific questions or tasks might be asked for. If there is anybody who can give me and would like to give me some advice, please message me on Slack. He's Philip from CH or Twitter. He's at aviator underscore Phil, P-H-I-L. And that's going to be ITSN. Thanks so much and all the best, Philip. Um, He said, this is not a request for general interview tips, but a two hour long interview makes me believe they will ask more ops oriented questions possibly tasks to do. So if anybody has any insight, that would be fantastic. So you know what, Philip, I know the APG community and I know they're not going to let you down. So uh, please uh, contact Philip on Slack or Twitter. And again, the information's there in the show notes for you to do that. All right. And I wonder if uh, we've got anyone in the list amongst our listenership who actually conducts those interviews. Now that would be kind of cool. Now we, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think it to be out of the realm of possibility because we are the APG after all, wide-reaching and all-knowing. That's right. We're even on a car screens. <laughs> this is true. Yeah, and they named an airport after us up in uh, Maryland. Uh huh. Uh huh. So see, yeah, we got a lot of pull out there. 
Oh Very influential. Goodness. Yes. The actress to the bishop. <laughs> okay. Uh, eight. Sean. Um, not sure what to think on this one. No one's flying to Hawaii in three and four engine aircraft anymore, but at the same time, ETOPS isn't something you want to get wrong. Having gone through ETOPS process recently with the FAA, the process is indeed lengthy, onerous, and seemingly mindless, but I'd rather have that than dropping aircraft into the ocean. What is he talking about? Well, it is this story that... Uh, from Wall Street Journal, FAA lowered bar for Southwest Airlines approvals, a complaint alleges. So there's a whistleblower that says regulations sped, uh, regulators sped approval of Hawaii flights for the financial benefit of the airline. Um, U.S. air safety regulators likely acted improperly in the way they authorized Southwest Airlines company to begin flights from California to Hawaii last year, according to the main government agency that handles federal whistleblower complaints. The preliminary conclusion by the Office of Special Counsel pertains to a Federal Aviation Administration employee's allegations that agency manners gave... Oh, so um, it was a whistleblower from the FAA. Uh, agency managers gave the carrier preferential treatment by rushing the approval process and cutting corners in other ways. Counsel's staff found a substantial likelihood of wrongdoing by FAA employees, according to one document, among several documents and emails between staff and the whistleblower reviewed by the Wall Street Journal. The inquiry has, hasn't been made public until now. <laughs> um, all right. So there's more to this article here. Um, and so I don't know what kind, of, uh, what kind of proof they have to back all of this up. But uh, if it's true, that's not a good thing. to. I mean... Yeah. No, you don't want to be rushing things that are in the interest of safety, certainly. Right. Um, my only other thoughts are that there are other airlines that are flying similar aircraft um, the same distance from uh, California or the west coast of the U.S. to Hawaii. And so you would think that the regulations in order to do so in terms of certifying those aircraft would be in place. and It would be a relatively straightforward process to meet those guidelines. Um, they should be relatively cut and dry, but you would it's think not my so. area of expertise. So. Maybe it has more to do, not necessarily with the airplanes with themselves, training. but yeah, like the the company's policies and policies procedures, and, yep, perhaps. SOPs and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, each airline that uh, applies for ETOPS has to have both an engineering and a, an operations uh, inspection to ensure that the correct training is done. They uh, usually have to earn ETOPS through periods of proving that they can operate uh, up to the uh, maintenance and serviceability standard for uh, ETOPS flights, and then slowly having gained experience, their um, ETOPS uh, clearances are, uh, in, they grow so that they can go further distances uh, between um, uh, diversions. Uh, and uh, I guess they're suggesting that um, Southwest might have found a way to short circuit the system. I don't know, but that's what it sounds like. People have, for a long time, kind of accused them kind of having a very cozy relationship with the FAA. And that's one of the, I think, one of the things that is kind of not such a great thing with the FAA because they are, they kind of have dual, a dual mission to promote aviation and mm -hmm. to regulate aviation. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that line gets a little bit blurred. And the last thing I have to say is that this shows you what delivering tens of pizzas to FAA people will do for you. 
No, I'm just kidding. There's an old joke <laughs> that we, there's an old joke that we think that Southwest gets uh, special treatment because they send like just bunches, dozens of pizzas up to the uh, ATC control tower, you know, that <laughs> they can, get all the shortcuts. I'm sure it's not really true. Faster than everyone else. Because it's, of the, yeah. yeah, it's kind of a meme, I think, uh, nice. more than anything else. It's probably not really true, but it's kind of fun to say. Yeah. They must have sent them some more pizzas. Uh, so that's just a joke, by the way. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Uh, we'll probably hear if that is actually after the investigation is complete, if they are, or maybe it has been completed. Did, did they get um, fined at all? Or? I don't know. They're, they're, this was just about the uh, whistleblower complaint, Okay, I think. So I'm sure we'll hear something if, if something comes of this. And uh, thank you, Sean, for that. And again, ITSN, if you want to read the entire article from the uh, Wall Street Journal. Um, this is a good I'll, one. Can't yeah. wait for this one. So, Dave, you know, we were talking um, pronunciation. What, did it have something to do with um, kind of relaying our stories of uh, you were, my time? You were, and, there was a story where there were some English town names and you were reading yeah. them and asking Nick if that was correct, like after yeah. each one. I probably shouldn't anymore, but, you know, I, I figured that he would know. Um, so, um, I always... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now I know that it's not necessarily the correct answer. Anyway, um, Dave writes in, how to pronounce English town names uh, for Jeff. Thank you, Dave. I appreciate it. I love you, too. Um, and I think he, you should have a go at these before we. OK, I will. OK, he gave, he gave me a link to this um, to this video where this very nice young lady um, kind of goes over, you know, the meanings and pronunciations of these town names or city names, village names, whatever. So I I just wrote down a few of the ones that she had mentioned, and then I finally got to the point where I didn't have oh, any so more. So you misspelled them. All right. I no, it's exactly. You, did you watch the? I'll ask again. Did you watch the video? <laughs> Why would I watch the video? Because I then you would here. see that I copied word for word, uh, letter per letter, uh, what no she had on her whiteboard. Well, then you're going to have. I don't even see. You're going to have to write into her. Listed on the written. Uh, am I seeing like a different note than you guys? What are you making it up? Well, anyway, you, you might carry on. Re I, like refresh your browser or something. <laughs> <laughs> I was probably in the middle of writing all these things down when you probably set up the, the tab to begin with. So oh, you think? Okay. If you refresh it. And I'm talking this stuff, not you. I, it should be. Yeah, that's current, I okay. think. Let me, right. let me double check. Um, anyway, so I wrote down some of these names. Not all of them because I didn't. I mean, it was a, It's quite a long video and she has several whiteboards with all these things. Um, drawn on the whiteboard uh we'll start off with um birmingham uh nottingham tottenham durham rexham and west ham now one of those i, I, I actually hang on a minute. The one hang of those on, i, I actually uh, need a buzzer like, wait a minute no wait hang yeah. on before you go i'm gonna let you talk one of those i pronounced properly correctly english properly which one? And the rest for American. The last one, West Ham. Yeah, that's that's all right. There's okay. two separate words. I know, but it's the name I, of the you town. You cut out a little bit there in the center. How did you pronounce the town name that's also in North Carolina? Durham. <laughs> no. I know. So let me, let me, I was just pulling everybody's leg. <laughs> okay. Birmingham, Nottingham, Nottingham Tottenham, uh, Durham, Tottenham. 
Tottenham. That's you right. See, you, 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 it's it's classic uh, to put the for you guys to put the emphasis on the back end of the word, not the front. Yeah, we tail off at the back end. Unless so you're a southerner, then you the emphasis on the you put the emphasis on the front. <laughs> I just peter out at like, the end. Um, Nottingham, Tottenham, and what's the one after Tottenham? Uh, Durham. Durham. Okay. Uh, Wrexham, and then West Ham, according to Jade, the lady on the video. I think she's very good. Uh, the, then the next set are the uh, the Breeze or Burries, the uh, Canterbury, Shrewsbury, Shrewsbury, uh, Glastonbury. Yeah, that's not bad. Uh, Ipswich, Norwich. Yeah, very good. Uh, Plymouth, Barmouth, Yarmouth. Born, Bournemouth. Bournemouth. Yeah. And Yarmouth. Yep. Uh, let's see, Leicester, and according to Jade on the video, Worcester, oh no. What happened? Damn it. Oh, there he is. And there you have it. And there you have it. Got them all right. Very good. 100%. (laughs) Went through all 100 names. I hope that you got me uh, saying them all. Mm -hmm. I don't know what happened. It just dropped on me here yeah it did the same thing to me oh okay it must be then i'm guessing Streamyard because um i i think i didn't lose a signal here so uh, i um, stayed <laughs> i i was i remained there working all the time so i don't think it was Streamyard. you um, just the american half of the world just, uh, the, yeah, the, the internet in the u.s in the southern u.s yeah yeah it's the entire <laughs> yeah. of the u.s you had a gray out okay whatever it's like that movie uh yesterday and all of a sudden the beatles have never existed right yeah right. all my troubles seem so far away <laughs> okay okay good so uh again uh, i'm just i'm just kind of mimicking what uh miss the beautiful miss jade said in her r- wonderful video she spelled this word w-o-r-c-h-e-s-t-e-r i know it's there's an H there that's not supposed to be, but that's the way she spelled it. And she said it was pronounced Wooster or Worcester. And yes, it is, but there's no H in there. Okay. Um, and then um, I'll get you her email and you can correct her. No, um, let's see. And then I'm going to say um, this one is a little bit um, harder. I think it's like Siren Sister. That's very good. Something I'll like do. that. Siren Sister. Okay. And that's. No, I think we'll give you uh, at least 90%. That's well above the well, it's uh, only show because average. I, that's only because I watched Jade in her presentation. And let's let everybody hear just a little bit of how nice this young lady is, even though she's something sometimes wrong. Um, let's see. I'll start from the very beginning. And here we go. Hi, everyone. In this lesson, we're going to learn the pronunciation of towns and cities in England, but we're going to focus on the suffixes of those towns and cities. Originally, hundreds of years ago, these suffixes on the end of a place name would have meant something. And if we know that suffix, we can understand what that okay, so town or city was kind of get the idea how she's setting this whole thing up. She has a whiteboard behind so her I'm with all these names. I'm going to see if I can find the one that we're having some issues with. So now, so Nick knows quite a few of these towns um, uh, also exist in the United States and are pronounced very similarly. 
mm-hmm. similar to Sister. Like Worcester, right? I, and I Durham. They don't and Durham, say yep, in North Norwich. Carolina. Every time mm-hmm. they mention the name of Where's the Norwich? Uh, is that in... Oh, isn't well, I've heard everybody... Uh, I've heard people there, mostly pronounce it Norwich. Sorry, Connecticut, right? Yeah. Next we have the suffix field. Okay, wait. I'm going to back field her up here to this one that we have a bone of contention with. I don't know, but yeah, here we, go. we say siren And also, even if you know how to read IPA, I know how to drink it them. comes out as quite a long word. Oh, drum, she's still talking which about means that like castle and means like fort in English. We have Leicester. Leicester. When we look at that word, the first we guess. Go, what? Looks like Leicester. Leicester. Something like that. Oh, yeah, Leicester. But actually, it's only two syllables, and we simply say Leicester. There's a Leicester, North Carolina. It's much easier to pronounce. Is Is it spelled like that? It is to spell that word. Huh. Next, we have. Do they pronounce it that way? Yep. Wow. Worcester. It's right near Asheville. Worcester. Huh. And there's a famous sauce from this place. We call it Worcester sauce. Worcester sauce. Or some people say. Worcestershire sauce. Two ways to pronounce that sauce. Next, we yeah, have I guess. probably the <laughs> hardest one. Anyway, you know what? It could be that she just misspelled it on her board. Probably. Quite prop. Quite possibly. Anyway, well, I, what I should say is, Dave, thank you very much for that. That was really... No, actually, I'm, I'm not being facetious. That was really interesting. It did help me with the pronunciation of a lot of a lot of these towns and villages and cities and such. And I've only gotten through about two-thirds of it, so I, I still have homework. I still ha- I need to watch the rest of it. The only annoying thing is that we get a lot of fun out of listening to you try to pronounce these things. <laughs> I know. And you want likewise. me to mispronounce it, right? Shall I go back? Oh, yeah, please. Okay. <laughs> All right. And, uh, then, and then look kind of confused. <laughs> well, that's easy for me. <laughs> huh? All right. Um, gosh, just, uh, about six minutes left, uh, as far as I can tell. Is that close, Liz? Um, I know we had a little hiccup there with my and Steph's connections. Um, this is, is there anyone that we just have to do before the next, before we cover the next show? Um, I'm thinking maybe we'll do number 10, Scott. Um, here, let me read her private chat. Um, Okay. Uh, this one is from Scott and he said, hi guys, love the show. Solid info wrapped in good humor on APG 407 flying into Columbus, Ohio was discussed. Uh, so I checked out the layout on Google maps and noticed not one plane at the gates. I saw this phenomenon at Toronto's Pearson international airport as well. All empty gates at a very sizable airport, maybe three planes, possibly mid morning images attached. I know there are slow times at the airport with lots of spare seats at the Chick-fil-A, but these total vacancies seem uncanny. What's your experience? Clear skies and empty tarmacs. <laughs> so he has a couple of photos that he's included here. And yeah, it does look a little strange, all these gates at all these different terminals, both at, both at Toronto's Pearson and uh, Columbus, uh, John Glenn, Columbus, Ohio. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Do you think it's a possibility that when they snapped the photo that there actually weren't any airplanes at the gates? Or do you think I that... think it's unlikely. Yeah. Although, 
you know, I, I was thinking the same thing, Steph, but if you look at the one, the Toronto Pearson one at, at, at on top, if you really zoom it in, you'll see like on the right-hand like side. Shadows of aircraft. No, there are, on the right-hand side, there are actually some, some airplanes parked at uh, that terminal that would be on the southeast side. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a bunch of little uh, commuter yeah. jets. And then there are some, mm-hmm. um, a little bit, almost in the center of the photo, uh, some more regional jets, that size airplane. Yeah, on that gray smack of tarmac, yeah. yeah. So, so perhaps so. I just pulled up um, Charlotte Douglas because I don't think I've ever seen anything quite that empty there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's usually chock full of air, airplanes parked at gates and usually some aircraft waiting for gates. And the Google uh, Earth map has all kinds of aircraft parked there. Hmm. Well, you see, I think there is a possibility they've uh, had to remove some airplanes because if you look at the one of Toronto, they, there's a shadow right in the mm-hmm. middle, uh, the bottom of the picture, where the uh, Millennium Falcon uh, has landed. Oh, yeah, I do now, see Obviously, that. they're a bit worried about people, <laughs> Star Wars fans, coming down and mobbing the place. So they obviously brushed that out, but <laughs> they didn't get rid of the shadow. Uh they need I to think find the somebody probably, better at Photoshop than this person Yeah, was. yeah, exactly right. They do. <laughs> so I think they probably had to remove some airplanes as well just to make sure that it looked normal. <laughs> oh, actually, you know what? I pulled up. Um, hmm. Nope, there's still plenty. You have to go to the there. show notes to see that picture, but yeah. it's definitely the Millennium Falcon. Yeah, I, I agree. Or even almost like the front half of the uh, the Enterprise, um, the, the mm-hmm. Star Trek. Oh, yeah, it could be. Bit. Yeah, it could yep. have been a bit of the Enterprise, yeah. <laughs> Missing an engine pod, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. We don't know what the answer is, Scott. Um, I I have seen the Atlanta airport uh, with many, many, many gates um, unoccupied, uh, but to see like all of the concourses and zero airplanes, that would be very unusual. I don't think I've ever seen that. Yeah, so sounds like. So I was looking. Could... I was looking at the uh, the Apple Maps uh, satellite imagery for the first time around. Now I'm looking at uh, Google Maps mm-hmm. of Charlotte, and uh, like the entire E concourse, except for one plane, is empty. Which I can almost guarantee you that that's never the case. Um, and then some of the other concourses are, like, one of them only has two planes in it. Um, just seems odd. There are times, though, that. you know, the way they bank the flights, you know, they mm-hmm. uh, they do have like yeah, busy times so. and not so busy and times. Busy. Yeah, I don't know. It does look suspicious to me. Uh-huh. All right. Um, do we have time? No, we don't have time for Greg's uh, audio feedback. Sorry, Greg. Uh, regarding lithium batteries, we'll have to move that one to the next show. Um, oh, uh, maybe quickly, our, our fitness expert, Steph, can help us with this one, number 12. Uh, Joel via Facebook chat room. Actually, yeah, la- last show. Actually, he was uh, he asked this question. Uh, could you guys expound upon some good tips for f- staying fit, food, and exercise with rapidly changing schedules and routines between home and trips? I want to get back into shape, and I just wonder how you guys handle that. Uh, my answer is easy. I don't do any of that. Yeah, there's only one of us that does. Yes, and then Steph is going to answer you. Yes. So it's really just about planning in advance, uh, knowing what your trip is going to be. So even though I don't uh, work in this industry, I still travel quite a bit and hot time zones sometimes, and sometimes in very short order. Um, London earlier this month was an example of that. Um, but you just, uh, you know, for me, sleep is the biggest key to this, because if I haven't 
gotten enough sleep, it's very hard to build in the time to also go to the gym and figure out how to eat healthy as well. Uh, so in advance of going on the trip, I'll figure out what my sleep strategy is going to be when I'm going to try and figure out how to get enough uh, sleep time in. And as long as I can keep uh, my sleep schedule pretty well, then I can usually build in the time to make it to like the hotel gym or figure out when I'm going to go for a run. Um, if I'm traveling with other people, I'll try and build it in with um, the folks I'm traveling with if they're interested in going to the gym or running or working out in some capacity. Um, eating can be tricky if you're you know in the airport a lot um, or on the road a lot. Uh, it can get difficult, but there's always um, in this day and age, there's good options or at least better options. Um, you don't always have to have the burger, fries, and Coke. You can have a, a sandwich somewhere or a smoothie or something a little bit healthier. So I can tell you I what I only eat burgers, fries, and Coke. I, I do this fly my entire diet. <laughs> I do fly with, um, younger, um, more athletically fit, physically fit people. And, uh, what they tend to do is, um, you know, we, we arrive if we're kind of the flying, the kind of trips that I fly, where you get in the like mid afternoon or even sometimes during the middle of the day or mm -hmm. maybe even later in the afternoon, they'll, you know, we'll, we'll usually try to set up a time to meet for dinner. And, and, um, a lot of times they'll say, well, I'm going to try to get a quick workout in and I'll say, you know, I'll start off with something like, let's, you know, meet at five and, and he's, you know, is it okay if we make it six because I, I want to get a workout in. So a lot of the guys that I fly with, again, the, the younger people, uh, will find a, um, find the gym and the hotel and uh, get some kind of a workout. Uh, also as regarding the food thing, uh, a lot of them also carry their own food with mm -hmm. them, you know, healthy food and like little, little bag. And I'm yeah, carrying you can do, um, there's a lot of good options for that. Um, they even make little portable, um, they look like a insulated container, but it'll have a, a heating element on the bottom of it. So you just plug it in and you can, can oh. heat all kinds of things in there. Yeah. Um, and their travel size. Um, I'm not as good at preparing meals that way. That's kind of one of my shortcomings. So I really just try and look for options that are healthier as opposed to some of the less healthy yeah. food options. Preparation is a big, a, a key, sure. uh, key to success with that because I never think about any of this stuff until I'm mm -hmm. on my trip. I go, Oh, that's a good idea. I'm not even good at it on a day to day basis. I can have like healthy leftovers ready to go and just mm -hmm. leave it in the, the refrigerator. Go for the hamburger and French fries. I just, I just forget it first thing in the morning. <laughs> okay. Not good. So that's an area for me to work on. But yeah, there's there's yeah. lots of ways to get around it. And most of it comes down to planning and preparation, as Jeff was saying. Yeah. All right. Well, hope that uh, helped, Joel. And uh, to everyone else out there um, we didn't get to, um, we'll definitely move all that over to the 411 show uh, folder. And we'll cover it next time. So. Uh, if you want to, if you're new to the show and you want to learn more about the crew and uh, the community and uh, merchandise and the coffee fund and you know, learn more information about the plane tales, um, don't worry, Nick, I'll, I'll get on that. And uh, oh, thanks. Yeah, I need some more. Yeah. Um, and so much more. Oh, and probably one of the most important things on there is the uh, APG community calendar. You can also see what we're doing out there if we have any meetups planned and that sort of thing so and when we're going to record the next show when we know so uh, check that out at airlinepilotguy.com and uh, let's see I guess we're on the social meds and Steph can tell us about that 
We are indeed. You can head over to twitter.com. Use the handle at APG crew. We're all there. You can find our individual Twitter information pinned to the top of that page. You can also head over to facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. Good community interaction going on there. Lots of folks sharing recent news and other aviation related stories. And uh, for more ways on joining our community, I'll let Hillel tell you about Slack. All right. Hello. Hello. Time. All right. He's in the shower. I'm not sure he can hear me. Hang on. Hello. Time. Get out of the shower, man. You know, I don't know why he always takes a shower right toward the end of the show like this. This timing is uncanny. It is. It really is. All right, and uh, here he is. Uh, I'm going to move out of the way, and he's going to tell you about Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thank you so much, Hillel, for, uh, for doing that for us, managing the... Um the uh, Slack team, and uh, so, oh, I don't know. Hello? Come on, man. Can you get me a roll of toilet paper? Okay, after the show. All right, sorry about that, folks. And until next time, wishing you all clear skies, unlimited tailwinds, and is that right? No. Unlimited <laughs> visibility and tailwinds. Take I'd care. like unlimited tailwinds. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. Go Chiefs. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day. a good, good pilot Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline pilot guy I fly America oh, Airline pilot guy He can't land in heavy fall oh, I got no friends cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, how did I I fly away